A special thank you to Matt Gannon and Hillary Billery. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is our full-time jobs now. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. When it comes to left media, there is no charity, only solidarity. This is Sam. This is Mo. And this is Southpaw. This is part two and the final part of my conversation with Japanese-American concentration camp survivor and unapologetic revolutionary, Mo Nishida. This will cover the second act of Mo's life, along with his work and views as a revolutionary, his thoughts on the future, and how much he was influenced by not only science or political philosophy, but also from the traditional knowledge of indigenous people, as well as from revolutionaries in Africa. This episode is also where we create a through line from everything that happened to Mo as a young person to him becoming a revolutionary and what that actually means. You now know more about American concentration camps, but what do we do with that? This is why hearing what happened to Mo afterward and his knowledge as a true elder is so important. A lot of people hastily assume the difference between revolutionary politics and their personal politics is just a matter of opinion. We both see the same things. We just think differently about them. But the problem with that is to assume you both see the same things and you both know the same things. But throughout this conversation, you might find out about things you never knew about or new ideas you never thought about. Then it's not about knowing the same things and having differences in opinion. It's about not knowing all the facts, then forming your opinions where gaps are filled with assumptions, or taking things to be true because that's the norm. So listen to this episode with an open mind. Due to the length, I turned my conversation with Mo into two different episodes. But much like what Mo says, you have to think about things as a whole, as one history, one planet. This two-parter also isn't a standard interview. It's been more of a long-term project. This is the compilation of several recorded conversations with Mo, most of which were recorded in person before the COVID-19 lockdown. I held back the release of this project because Mo wanted to have one last follow-up conversation. You see, Mo's been interviewed for radio, magazines, books, and TV shows dozens and dozens of times. But he said he felt like he was never able to tell his story, his full story, and in his own way. They took parts of things he said they liked, but told his story their way. They only wanted to talk about his childhood, but not how that affected him after as an adult. They told a story about him, rather than letting him tell you his story. And that's a historical problem. People of color and oppressed peoples having their stories told, but not by them. Being used as a plot device, or as some character in a story, 
but always with the same narrator you always get. You're exoticized, essentialized, and dehumanized. After speaking with Mo at length before doing the interview, he said he trusted me to tell his story and perhaps even help to clarify some points because he hasn't had to explain his experiences and thoughts in detail in a long time, especially with regards to the second act of his life. So this episode is much more of a conversation than it is an interview, which is something Mo speaks about, that the best way to get to understanding is through dialogue. But unfortunately, when the lockdown happened, I couldn't go see Mo to finish our conversation. But instead of releasing the episode as is, with feelings and thoughts Mo still had unsaid, I wanted to make sure he got his full say. So I called him up, and we went over the other things he wanted to say that he forgot to mention previously. He said at his age, he can't get everything out in one or two conversations. But that's the oral tradition. It's supposed to take place over a series of conversations. This is how it worked in traditional knowledge. And this is how it works with elders. At first, Mo gave me notes and told me to just say it for him as an addendum, that he didn't feel like it justified doing a new interview. And also, his phone is an old flip phone and way too old to connect to Skype. Mo also doesn't hear that well, which is another challenge to doing it remotely. But after thinking about it for a few days, I didn't feel right about it because this might be his last chance to get all his thoughts out. So I felt like it was my responsibility to make sure he got a say. So I contacted Mo's son, who helped me set up a remote interview. You'll notice a change in how Mo sounds in the middle of our conversation. But through the help of his son, Morizo, the sound quality is still very good. So I have to thank Morizo also for helping to create this final episode. And also, I can't forget to thank Mo for being so generous with his time and knowledge. And I can't forget about David Dang for introducing me to Mo. With all that said, we're picking up this episode right where we left off in part one, how laissez-faire capitalism leads to capitalist fascism. Let me use a pop cultural reference to frame this idea, because it might be hard to grasp at first. When the movie The Avengers Infinity War came out, I saw a lot of pundits to regular people I know saying Thanos had a point sacrificing the people makes sense because that makes more sense to people than ending capitalism. And now that we are in an actual life and death global crisis, you see people saying the same things now. Sacrifice the people to save capitalism. Sacrifice the people to save privatized healthcare. Even if you don't say the quiet part out loud, poor people, brown and black people are disproportionately affected by the pandemic. They're being sacrificed. When international doctors were debating using an untested vaccine to treat the coronavirus, it was just a given for some of the doctors to say, test it in Africa, experiment on them. Think about that in relation to what you know now. You have all this accumulated wealth that people could be living off of during the pandemic, but instead, people are going broke and without basic needs. We are in capitalist fascism. We've already been killing people to save capitalism. And with capitalism more at risk, we're now even more willing to do more of it. And we'll chalk it up as collateral damage. Because the way it's presented is, what other choice did we have? Much like most atrocities, even with the atomic bombings, 
or the incarceration of Japanese Americans. What choice did we have? Slavery? What choice did we have? There's a concept called capitalist realism, where our brains mistakenly take capitalism as a fixture of reality. This is why it is easier to imagine an end to the world than an end to capitalism. You have bourgeois democracy, liberal democracy, going so far, then you have reaction going in, and you have this neoliberalism, which is laissez-faire monopoly capitalism today, and they're doing whatever they want, and, and people start to more and more react, and then they're going to need more and more constraints on the people and stuff like that. So the logical move under bourgeois capitalism is fascism. Right? In the end, they need a, a, a authoritarian state to control people. It's one or the other. You can free the markets or you can free the people, but you can't do both because freeing one requires the other to be constrained. If I untie you, you'll tie me down. If you untie me, I'll tie you down. So for one of us to run around free, I need to make sure you can't move. So for capitalism to be laissez-faire and to run free, it needs to constrain us so we don't try to stop it because we're getting screwed over. So it needs a police state to hold us down so it can do what it wants. Thank you. For us to be free, the economic system needs to work for us and do what we want. It needs to service us, not the other way around. It needs to work for us, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something that Marx used to talk about was that idea of freedom. The point isn't for all of us to become super workers. The point is that we can work more efficiently so that we can all be free. Yep, 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 yep. So that we can all become the fullest of our potential. Well, you know, the problem with Marxism as it's been interpreted, right, especially by the, the Western intellectuals, is it's always about them freeing us. Who's them? Them being the elites and the, these intellectuals uh, are going to guide us and show us, right? These theorists. Yeah, so that's why you, you end up with these party dictatorships. So that's where Maoism is so different is that Mao doesn't talk about you know the party as the instrument. The human, individual human being is the instrument. So that's what we got to build up. So that's why he's he's he's, he's real famous for for ex exploring that, right? Because he says, right, contradictions amongst the people. How do you resolve that? There's only one way through dialogue, right? He says no coercion, no kind of you know mind fucking or. Or, or, or making people scared or nothing like that. The only way that you can get, you can win an argument is that by coercion, by talking. So he said, you could talk for a hundred years. So what? As long as you ain't putting nobody down or, or messing with somebody else, you could talk. So that's, that's the kind of system we want, right? Where we want everybody to be free and equal, free being that you're free to speak your mind. Right? You're free to ask any questions you want and, 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 and can demand transparency and you can't mess with nobody else. You see that where to a lot of white leftists, they're very much into Marx. But if you look at the history of people of color 
leftists, right? Even to this day, they're much more inspired by Mao or they consider themselves more Maoist than they are Marxist-Leninist. Yeah, well, I, I, I think the reality is that, you know, Mao drew his inspiration from Marx, Engels, yeah. Lenin, right? And, 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 and what that put, what the potential of socialism represented, except that it was always top down. That was the problem with the Western interpretation of Marx, right? Whereas he's saying, yeah. It's got to be from the bottom up. Then we could be free. If you got to depend on anybody or any party or any institution to set you free, you ain't free. I think that's why Mao appeals so much more to people of color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we know what it means to have somebody sitting on your fucking head, right? Yeah. So you said they didn't bust you back to L.A. after the camps. No, what they did was uh, they gave, uh, my understanding, okay, they gave, uh, my parents, or my mom, my dad was out working. He wasn't with us, but uh, she came back with uh, her sisters and brothers, part of her family, and uh, we put on a train and given a ticket to go back to California. And when you came back to California, was your property still left intact and still under your name? Well, no. You know, my parents were enemy aliens. So they never were allowed to own property. To begin with. Yeah. So you only got to leave with a bag anyway. So it was basically starting from scratch. Yeah. No reparations. No, no, nothing. You got to find a new place now, find a new apartment because y'all weren't allowed to own property anyway. Yep. And so it was just starting all over again. Yep. So what we did was we sent, we came back and we lived in hostels. Right? And the hostels were basically the churches and temples they were converted into dormitories for the people coming back. So it was a reset, and you all started at the hostels again, as if you just came over here for the first yeah, time to yeah, the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were born here, but in a way, you were an alien here. Yeah, I was a, I was a, yeah. U.S. born alien. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. American alien. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we moved around a lot in the, in the forties, right after the war. And uh, that's where I, I developed a real uh, negative attitude towards changing schools all the time. So I, I made sure that he had pretty stable life in grammar school, going to school. Your son? Yeah. Yeah. So during that time for you, then, your dad was somewhere else working, and it was your mom trying to take care of you all. Yeah. He, he comes back to us uh, probably around 46 47, 46, I think. What was he doing? Oh, he was a, a, a agriculture worker in Colorado, helping them you know, take care of the crops and stuff like that. Most of the, from 45, 46 to about 49, we're moving around, and my dad joins us, and then he, he goes into gardening and stuff like that. And then what, once he's able to get his profession, he becomes a gardener, professional gardener, and once he starts to make some money, then our, we, we start, our, our life starts to settle down. Then we move back to the old neighborhood. Well, you see that still in old movies, the Japanese gardener. So that must have been a thing that one of the few jobs that the Japanese after the internment camps could get. Yep, yep, yep. If you worked hard, you could make a decent living. 
gardening at that time. Yeah, yeah. Before that, uh, all the other jobs you had to, you know, you had to work for other Japanese people, and you know we had that dual economy in the U.S. There, right? We had the segregated economy of the people of color, right? And you only worked for people of color, other Japanese people. So, so they paid less. That's you know, depressed economy begin with, right? Because we're colonized within the U.S. Yes. So, didn't make enough fucking money working for another booty head, right? Yeah. So the only place that you could make a living, a decent living, would be in gardening. So that's what people did. Yeah. So most of the people went into gardening. So how'd you start getting political? Well, I come out of the service in 58, January 58. Oh, so after high school, you enlisted? Yeah. Well, I went to college for a while and fucked that all up. (laughs) Yeah, I figured I better to get the GI Bill. Yeah, I, 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 I joined the Army. And I came back. And then, you know, Cuba happened at that time. And this still happens for a lot of disenfranchised people of color. It's almost like you don't go to the army necessarily because you believe in all that shit. It's almost like a ticket out of whatever situation you're in. Yep, 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 exactly. And when I came out, I was a right winger. Surprise twist. Yeah, all the guys talk about burning the draft cards and stuff like that. Fuck, I spent, you know, I did my time in the army. Yeah, they could do their time. And if they like Cuba that much, shit, they ought to go to Cuba. That was my attitude. Then I I heard about Malcolm, right? And uh, then I, I watched him on television. And he was saying all the things that I wanted to say <laughs> publicly, right? Uh, making Chuck eat it, right? <laughs> making who eat it? Chuck, Mr. Charlie, the white boy. <laughs> I, I mean, he's one of them guys. Uh, they put him on them talk shows. He eat him up. Yep. Yep. He eat him up, boy. So, out of all the leaders at that time, it was Malcolm X who spoke to you the most. Yep. 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 And even though you were a reactionary at the time, I find a lot of like, especially uh, people of color and people who came up the hard way, even if they're right wing, they're not like a real right winger. And what I mean by this is that to be a true right winger, you have to be like rich and come up privileged. This is my opinion. The reason why is because then you really believe in it. You think this is the best thing. This is like, this is as good as sliced bread, right? Yeah. Whereas a lot of disenfranchised people of color, they end up on the right because of cynicism, because of pessimism, right? So that's not like a true belief. It's just like life sucks. Everything's fucked up. Let's all just look out for yourself. Look out for number one. And that's not like really buying into it. It's more like coming from a place of being traumatized and fear and anger, I think, right? So then there's still kind of like a mistrust and a disdain for the powers that be. So I think then that's why for a lot of people of color, then they can still come out of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good analysis. So it sounds like for you then Malcolm X kind of harnessed that type of emotion in a bottle. You know, he was speaking, but he wasn't speaking where it was like happy-go-lucky. He was talking about being this franchise. He was talking about the anger. He was talking about the disdain. And flipping it, right? The, the, 
self-hatred, negative self-images, all of that negative shit that you grew up as a minority in this country thinking about yourself, right? He took all that stuff and flipped it, right? Say, man, that ain't us, right? Know your real history, right? And so start thinking about that. And then, like I said, you know, on the campuses, I was going to Cal State LA at the time. And the guys that I grew up with, a lot of the black guys would start wearing the afros and shit like that. I was tripping out on them, right? And then every time they confronted me, I didn't have shit to say. And so we started a, a discussion group, a lot of us uh, uh, graduate students, and sitting around drinking and talking about what's the, what, what is the role of Asians, Japanese, and this black-white paradigm that's, the, that's there, right? And we knew we weren't white. Right, all of us people my age, so we all lived through camp and all that other bushes. So, and then you know we decided, well, enough talk, let's go out and do something. So we decided we're going to support and help the black movement. Right, the rights of survival that were being denied black people. Right, so there's a whole lot of programs and stuff developing at that time. Right, and. That's what we tried to do, hook up with some of that stuff. And uh, that's where those of us that were Japanese or Asian, like we're told, just kind of, you know, thank you for your kindness, but uh, we need young black people. We don't need Asians here. If you, you know, serious about helping people, look in the mirror, <laughs> then go to your own neighborhood and ask what the hell's going on. So that's what we did. And then, then I, I had a chance to work on this survey that uh, was the first survey on Asian American people in this country, right? Uh, to look at what was happening with the old timers in, in Little Tokyo and then what was happening with the old timers and the, uh, the children and the mothers working in the sweatshops. So, who are you doing the survey for? Well, it was a. a organization called the Council of Oriental Organizations. It comes out of the uh, the movement to break down the housing covenants. And you, you know what the covenants are, right? The, the housing covenants are were those laws or agreements that white people made amongst themselves, especially the relatives, that they could own, you only could rent or, 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 or not rent to people. Right? So usually it was uh, you can only rent or sell to white people. You could rent or sell to people of color. So you're talking about racial covenants that you could still find in old deeds where it was actual specific legal language that said you can't sell this house or rent it to people of color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Racial covenants is really old. And then later on with the National Housing Act of 1934, that turned into redlining, which was the systematic denial of financial services and loans to people of color so that even when there was no racial covenant, they still couldn't buy a home. Yep. So it was a one-two punch so that if the first punch missed, the second punch will still keep people of color from owning homes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, it was institutionalized. Then 
we had to have a plebiscite, right, to vote on it to break that law. So that's that's what happened. And there was a coalition of Asian people came together to fight that law, right, or, or or get that law passed where they couldn't discriminate. And uh, and out of that comes an Asian organization, mainly Chinese and Japanese, but then they apply for a grant to do a survey in Chinatown and Little Tokyo. So I, I, I work on that. And, you know, up until that time, right, talk about all the Japanese people, the model minority stuff is building at that time, right? At the, oh, the fucking Japanese people take care of their own. They got no problems, right? Blah, blah, blah. Chinese people the same, right? Everything's cool. Right? And that's what the leaders are telling us, right? Our, our, our leaders. Well, we could do this survey. We're fucking lying, right? Uh, the, the the little Tokyo, the seniors there, man, it's just uh, I don't like to say this in public, you know, because uh, I don't want to bring shame on our people or make our people look bad. Yeah? The fuck, we had people that were eating dog food, cat food, because of the high-protein content so they could survive. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But it just says it. But why? Why would somebody have to? That happens in Koreatown also with the seniors there. We've bought into that propaganda. The Koreans in Koreatown, I mean, we're so proud. We're like, we take care of our own. We're not like other minorities. We're good. We make sure that everybody's taken care of. And it's like, bullshit. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I just freaked out on that shit, you know, so we started, you know, organizing and doing doing projects. But we found out that as young people, we didn't have no resources. You know, at first we wanted to develop a health clinic. Right? We we had the volunteer nurses, volunteer doctors, right, because of the other health clinics that were going on, free clinics that were going on. But we couldn't get a place. We couldn't get License and all of that kind of shit you got to go through in order to have a clinic. So then we said, well, hot meals program. We can at least feed our people. Yeah. Didn't have the resources to do that. So what we ended up doing was let's just get organized. So we started doing showing free motion pictures and then taking advantage of county run trips and stuff like that, harbor trips and stuff like that. And getting our people out and, and and developing a mailing list, and we finally developed this thing, a uh, 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 organization called the Pioneer Projects, where we organized, uh, you know, our senior citizens, and uh, it was so cool, right? Is that uh, we sent out postcards and stuff like that, and all of us would sit down and practice writing Japanese. You send postcards out to our mailing list, stuff like that, get people out, but then take them out to our our big thing was to take them out to a flower trip out to the countryside spring. The organization that we built in, 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 in J Town was that uh, you know they like to play Japanese chess and show shogi and go and stuff like that. And uh, one of the chess club was going to get closed down because the, the old man was running out of energy and and people to finance that. So we we. We, we worked with him, and we built this uh, drop-in center 
so they could have a place to play and that we would have a place where people could uh, people coming to J-Town could be dropped off. They could go shopping, come back, place to rest and stuff like that. And those uh, some of those centers still exist. Right? So 50 years now. Um, but yeah, so institution building, we call that, right? So you came back from the service. You were right wing at the time, but then you started listening to Malcolm X and something about him spoke to you, but it was more about empowerment at that time, right? It was like, turn the self-hatred into empowerment. All that stuff that you've been taught about yourself, where you hate yourself, it's all bullshit. There's a goodness, goodness within all people, right? Goodness inside of people of color. When I say goodness, I'm talking about good qualities, right? Right, right. And then you wanted to learn more because there was all these people at your campus, black students who were kind of reclaiming themselves, growing out their hair natural, and you wanted to talk to them, but they were telling you, maybe you need to work on your own community first, right? Yep. And then you started organizing within your own community. Right. More thinking about just problem solving at this point. What we saw was, uh, like you said, problem solving. We saw this problem with senior citizens. But uh, I was also a drinking guy. So on the weekends, I'd go out there and get towed up with my, my partners at the, the local bars where we all hung out at stuff. And uh, I knew a lot of people that uh, ended up going in and out of jail, people into drugs and shit like that. And uh, we got turned on to the Panthers and what they were doing, right? For a lot of Japanese Americans who lived through the internment, was drugs and alcohol and being in and out of jail common? Well, in the circles that I moved in, yeah. Uh, I also realized that there's a lot of circles, uh, the upward bound people that uh, kind of put us down that uh, we considered riffraff in the community, right? But there's those class kind of differentials also. When everybody returned from the camps and you were stuck into this disenfranchised, segregated class bubble, really, and you weren't able to escape it, then for those Japanese Americans, there was drugs, there was drinking, it being in and out of jail. Yeah, there was this whole thing about we didn't quite fit the stereotype that they wanted, right? The community wanted to promote for their young people and what, the, what everybody else was thinking, the model minority. So you guys were the rebels. Yeah, and, 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 and my, my, my understanding now is that, 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 that it's clearly class influence. Yes. The Japanese community at that time right, had uh, two characteristics. One was the single men, right? The men that uh, came over here were the laborers, did all the fucking work, right? And then there were the f families, right? The, the, the men that had enough, whatever it is, right? Usually it's money, but to be able to afford to get married and have children. And the single men's community has always been, you know, pretty lively, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that influenced a lot of us. And so we we're closer to that kind of life. Then how did you come upon the Black Panthers? Well, you know, being in the movement, so we had, a, we built an organization called. Asian hardcore, Asian American hardcore, and and when we had that debating society, I was telling you about, 
where we talked. Then we talked to Brown Berets, we talked to Panthers, we talked to all different groups of people that were doing shit in the community. Is that where you got turned on to Maoism? No, no, no. Ma- Mao comes after we get we make a direct linkage with the Panthers. The Asian hardcores. Yeah. And the Panthers were promoting the Red Book. So then we start studying the Red Book. So for the Panthers themselves, they were very much inspired by Mao's Red Book. Yeah. How did a Japanese guy living in Little Tokyo, a Chinatown area, link up with the Black Panthers and meet them and get to exchange and learn from them? Well, uh, initially, okay, at that time, there was just all this ferment, right? And uh, a lot of it was uh, self-expression. So one of the guys uh, who was uh, real prominent in the kind of movement theater was this guy named Alex Hing. He was a prominent member of the Red Guard in San Francisco. And he's the one that started flashing that red book around and, and citing it and stuff like that. So I wanted to know, okay, I don't, this guy. Right? So he just started discussing with him. So he started telling us about the Panthers. Like the Red Guard, Asian Hardcores, these are Asian radical groups that were inspired by the Black Panthers, trying to do something similar to them, but within your own community. Right. So I thought, wow, that's cool. And uh, and it made sense, right? And they, you know what he said was that they had tried to join the Panthers, and what Huey and uh, and Bobby told them was that uh, you don't have to join us, right? Form your own group in your own community and have your own base. But wasn't there a Japanese guy in the Panthers, Richard Aoki? Yeah. How did he get involved then? Well, he was not. I would say you know. An upfront member, he was a close friend of Bobby and Huey, especially Huey. So it's more like he had a lot of history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a couple more, right? There's a couple guys in Seattle. One guy was in the regular Panthers, but he's another bootheead cat that grew up with black people. So it was basically as these groups were forming, he had known them for so long anyway. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like some new, you know, Asian person coming in, can I join? Yeah. And he right. was basically family anyway. Yeah, yeah. So they told y'all to start your own thing. And that's where the Red Guard, which was in San Francisco, Asian Hardcore, this was LA. Yeah. So we get turned on to that and said, oh, cool. So Black Panthers came from the Black Power Movement. Brown Berets came from the Chicano movement. Right. AIM and uh, Milwaukee, right? AIM is what you mentioned earlier. That's Native peoples, right? American Indian movement, yeah. Yeah. Leonard Peltier talks about that, of them doing Serve the People programs in Milwaukee. So these were all adjacent 60s, 70s, radical, revolutionary groups. Yeah. And, and, and uh, we learned, and most of us, felt that uh, the Panthers represented the leadership of our of our movement, right? There is also this like knowledge gap where Asian Americans now, I think it would be such a foreign idea for them to think about Asian Americans at a previous period who were in tight with the Black Panthers or just Asians and Blacks in solidarity together. Because now a lot of the stereotype is, is that 
these two factions or these two groups are at odds with each other. But that's something that was kind of artificially fabricated later on. It was manufactured. Because you think about it, if there's an exclusion and everybody has to be segregated together, then that doesn't come up naturally. Yeah. Like you said, just like in the internment camps, right? They pit people against each other. They pit yeah, groups okay. against each other. They were able to even pit, like you said, Japanese people against each other based around the Japanese people who could speak English and the ones who couldn't. So then with races, it's a lot easier. Yeah, you could see it. Uh, yeah, so people, we've been, I'm not going to say that we had, you know, real tight relations and stuff like that. I think there are always elements in all of our, our groups that were trying to build that internationalism that we saw. Coalition building. Yeah, that we saw that we were all on the same side. Right? And in the old days, that's, that's the way it was. If you wanted to find out where we lived, you just crossed the tracks. <laughs> <laughs> we're all over here. Yep. All of us. Yep. And then, you know, in the movement, that white influence are so deadly. In the civil rights movement. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to describe. I mean, why the white movement was so deadly to us or destructive to us is that growing up under the, under the propaganda of, of, of moral superiority right, of white people, you always look for their approval on shit. You have to ingratiate yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem always with that is that in the end, when the push comes to the shove, motherfuckers just like, huh? They're gone. They can, they can just slip on, right on back into white society, right? And disappear. And, you know, our, our movement, the Asian movement, did the same thing, right? Asian Pacific People's Movement. But, but what, what was real interesting is that all the, 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 the job opportunities and openings that we fought for that, uh, was that our movement people were the ones that took the best advantage of that, right? And that's, that, of course, if you look at the history of the movement all over the world, you see that... Uh, the movement has always had the best, the most uh, most inspirational, inspired, competent, and competent, right? Young people. So shit, anything that, you know, they do, motherfuckers do a good job. Well, they're used to organizing and getting shit done. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> so once they figure out, oh, I can get shit done and get paid well, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we have... You know, university vice presidents and all this kind of shit, man. Yeah. Neoliberalism, which is the Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher era, where they took capitalism, monopoly capitalism, and put it on steroids, right? And just made it so much stronger than it was. It was already strong. It was already too strong. And then they juiced it up, right? One of the things that that period did is it distorted and retroactively changed the past. So when people think about Black Power or the Civil Rights Movement or even Black Panthers or some of these Asian radicals, they think it has more to do with pride, like pride in your race, pride in your people. And they completely erased the part about socialism or communism, right? Yeah, right. Like raising the fist of resistance 
now it has nothing to do with resistance. It has nothing to do with like class solidarity or POC, people of color solidarity. It's more a symbol of pride now. That's the thing where they can't erase it because people know it happened and that it exists, but they eliminated the political lens of it. They eliminated the political analysis of it. So people now today who are like capitalist entrepreneurs can look back and it's like, yeah, I have pride. I love the Panthers. I love this. You know, I love those radicals because they're just talking about that love of your race. Right. And they don't even realize now that a lot of that had to do with socialism or communism. Yeah. yeah, That was an inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that? Like, how do you think that all happened? Because it started out as a political movement. And now it's just a social movement where it's just about culture. It's like a cultural movement. What you did, if you look at how the Cox brothers, right, maneuvered, <laughs> right, Ronald Reagan and that whole, what they did to this country, then you realize that uh, it ain't that hard <laughs> to manipulate us, right? And that's what they did, right? I mean, they controlled everything so that they rewrote history and then rammed it down our throats. For people who don't know, when you say the Koch brothers, you're talking about David and Charles Koch. Yeah. I, I often wondered, you know, how the fuck did Regan do that? And see, when, when I was at uh, university, I had a political fellowship, so I went to Sacramento for about a year. And he was governor then. Right? And the San Francisco state strike was on then. And so we had a chance to dialogue with him. And it turned out, right, he's a dipshit. He doesn't know nothing. Do you think he was then more just a pawn? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he didn't, right? He was just a nice person, right? You know, try to please you. Right, and so you, you could you felt you could trust him, right? If you didn't know who the fuck he was, right? And so, yeah, you're chipping out on that, right? In fact, we got him to talk about, oh yeah, what they're doing at state, right? Hayakawa's wrong, and that's when his aide said, "Governor, you have another appointment." <laughs> Pulled his ass out of there. Well, we'd have had him in our pocket. <laughs> So I always wondered, well, who the fuck was behind him? Right? Okay, so it's new, rich, young people. But now we know, right, that the Koch brothers, they they had their machinery and that all that money working on this shit from before Regan, right? They decided, they picked Regan, right? Said, okay, this is our boy. We're going to run with him. Because Regan himself, right, was a lefty at one time. So we think with the Koch brothers that it started with G.W. Bush, but really it goes way back. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, 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 they saw, I think, with the civil rights movement, and especially with the civil rights movement hooked up with the anti-corporate sympathies of the 30s, right, that, hey, our hands are too tied. But, you know, back at that time, right, if you say you made over a million dollars, then you had to pay 95 cents out of a dollar in taxes. So you're talking about the marginal tax rate. Yeah. But the son of a bitch is making so much money 
they still got fat. And they decided they were not going to put up with this shit. So it became a systematic, just wearing it down, picking a fight, right? So they got all them goddamn judges. So you're talking about the history of the marginal tax rate post the Great Depression to prevent us from going into another depression ever again, right? Yeah. And then we forgot about the reason we had this marginal progressive tax rate. And then we had this reactionary turn to dismantle that whole system. Yeah. They always had class solidarity, right? The rich always had class solidarity. They're like, hey, we're paying too much taxes. We need to change some stuff up. Yeah, that's why the Democrats and the Republicans in the and the final analysis, always support each other. Well, they're both pro-capitalism, ultimately, right? Thank you. So for a lot of listeners, right, I think they're just learning. So what they might have heard about somebody you mentioned earlier, Mao, is maybe a lot of scary stuff, or they don't even know anything about him except he's just a scary bad man, right? Yeah, right. So can you teach us a little bit about Mao and why you don't think of him as this scary boogeyman? Yeah, I, I, I... I, you know, I, I think at least if you're curious about history or you lived through it, like I'd lived through a lot of it, you realize that uh, they talk all kind of shit about Mao. But if you look at the history of China back in the 30s and the 40s, you know, a million people would die off of starvation. Think about that, man. Millions of people just dying off because some rich some bitch was hogging all the goddamn food. You're talking about the last days of imperialism. Yeah. Which coincided with Western colonialism. You had all sorts of Western powers in China at that time. And also there was a period of occupation by the Japanese. Right, right. Not to mention several wars, several rebellions. There were so many overlapping problems and conflicts at that time. People have no idea how bad it was in China before the Communist Revolution. China was in really bad shape. The life expectancy of that country was really, really bad at this time. Yep. Happy countries don't have revolutions. That's the other thing people don't realize. And and, and people... You know, a great book to read is uh, Red Star Over China, right? Uh, uh, Snow. And it, it describes being on a train and dry, going, going through some of the poorest country in the Northwest, stuff like that. I mean, that don't exist no more. Nothing that, nothing that bad, right? And if... Somebody who liberates and provides life and takes care of a million people a year from not, not dying from starvation got to be doing something good. So that, that, that'll just break open the door, right? That's the one thing about communism is they were always molested. It's like, okay, if it really is going to fail, then the scientific process is you let the experiment run and then you see what happens. But then if you have to try to stop it, then you actually do believe that it might work. Yep. So you can't even say that it was really destined for failure because you always put sanctions on it. You went to war with it. You stopped all the trade routes. You did all these things to molest it, right? So that's the other thing is a lot of communist countries get blamed for the constraints that the U.S. and the West put on these countries where they couldn't do anything. 
Yep, yep, yep. Like, how are they going to do anything when you put all these sanctions on yep, them? Yep. What is a sanction anyway? Like, there is no moral justification. Every human rights organization opposes them. Yeah. Because all you're doing is starving and impoverishing the bottom people. Because the people at the top, they're going to figure out ways to smuggle shit in. They're going to get fed. Yep, yep, so yep. then what's the point of sanctions? It's that manipulation again. Yeah, they want, they want the poor people, the little people, common people to suffer and overthrow their leaders. But they're not stupid. They know who's putting the sanctions on them. Right. If, if the party or if the organization that's running the country is open enough to share their problems with the people, then the people will get behind and, and, and create solutions. Right? I mean, you had all these food embargoes and shit like that on, on Cuba. And when the Russians right turned tail and pulled out and pulled out all their aid, and the fucking country was on the verge of starvation. And within, what, three, five years, something like that? Food self-sufficiency? How the fuck you do that? Right? But they did it. And they showed, you know, what ordinary people, <laughs> what they could do when they get behind it, right? Actually, this sounds like a good segue to talking about liberation politics. But I think it's a form of politics that people don't really know about or yeah. it's an idea that they've never even thought about. Usually they just think in, yeah, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. They've heard of socialism. They've heard of communism, but they've never heard of politics in terms of liberation. Yeah. But most Americans are white, so they've never lived through slavery or colonization. So they've never had to form their politics around that. Right. So what is liberation politics? Yeah, okay. Just like, what is liberation? Liberation, right, it's like the, the, the way the Panthers described it, right, as part of their, their, their slogans. It's like, uh, what do we want? Freedom, justice, and equality. Okay. What do we mean by freedom? Well, freedom of a right to choose, right? The right, right to have control over our destiny, uh, over our communities. Justice, equality, right, is, 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 is to get, uh, have across the board the same kind of rights as everybody else. And equality is, of course, right, being okay with who you are, right, of, 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 of people of color, right? not being put down for people of color. So liberation would mean all of those things, right? Is that, that uh, except that, you know, when you put it into a socialism context, then it means that rich people shouldn't have any more rights than us. And the fact that they use money in such a negative way, right? And they don't work. Why the fuck should somebody that doesn't work <laughs> accumulate all that wealth? Well, you know, they can talk all they want to about the right of private property, but you could put a pile of money on the floor and tell that pile of money to do some work, and it ain't going to do it unless you pay somebody to do it, right? So it shows you what who's more important, money or people. It's people, right? So that's our thing, right? The whole thing should be, you know, under socialism. 
take away that, you know, take away all of that accumulated wealth. You don't let that tit be passed down. And when you talk about accumulated, you're not talking about accumulated in one lifetime. The wealth has gotten so crazy because it's been accumulated really for centuries, right? That's right. That's right. So take away that power, take away the power of, of, of their ownership of, of institutions. So liberation means not only having sovereignty or not only being free of molestation from all these different powers, but also liberation as in getting your own freedom back. Like they own so much of us as well, right? They own so much of our abilities, yeah, so much yeah. of what we see, do, speak, our laws to get our freedom back and get some of our own ownership back. And I think that's the part a lot of right-wing people miss is that, yeah, if you're free, I'm, I'm free, but you're free to take all my shit that I'm no longer free. You can't say we're both free. That's right. <laughs> if I could keep my shit, you could keep your shit and you can no longer not only not take my shit anymore, but you have to give back the shit you already took, then we're free. Yeah, talking about reparations. There's got to be some reparations. But yeah, so yeah, it, it it's pretty simple shit, right? Is that we don't support none of this goddamn oil companies and all these all these big companies that that, that uh, the workers got to be able to take a, take control of those things and do something for the common good, right? It can't be for for the for just because they want to make a buck, you know. Fuck their buck, you know. Also, they own shit that nobody should be able to own, and this got worse since neoliberalism. But it's where you can own the air. Yeah. Like you try to explain to somebody five hundred years ago, even a monarch, that you can own the air. Even the monarch will be like, "What? How can you own the air, right?" Mm -hmm. Or even knowledge. How can you own life-saving knowledge? But we take for granted how the concept of property has expanded to everything. So things like that, owning the air, owning communal public lands, owning the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Owning parts of the ocean, right? Not only owning it, but also destroying it or even destroying so much of it that even if you don't own my section, you're still destroying my section, right? Yeah, it's all one world, huh? It's all one world. And also being able to own ideas. Mm -hmm. So now I can't even have an idea because you own every idea I can have, right? So it's also that. How can I ever be free if you already own everything to begin with as soon as I'm born? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You own the air. You own my water. You own the land. You own every idea I can ever have. Liberation politics is about then getting that back or having that liberty back. Well, otherwise, then it's only like a few people have liberty mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the rest of us don't. So that means that under the current system, only a very small population of people have freedom and then the rest of us are not free, right? That's right. Yeah. That's a, in Marxism, that's called a bourgeois democracy. And the bourgeoisie, the real bourgeoisie, the monopoly capitalist bourgeoisie, the 1%, they're the only ones that actually have any kind of democracy. Everybody else has a bourgeois dictatorship, right? That they 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 control and own everything else. Well, so we we, we put a stop to all that shit, and and uh, we promote right. We promote transparency, right? That everything has got to be done out in the open. No, nobody got a right to do nothing in secret. Yeah, no tricks. Yeah, that's right. Uh, no small handwriting shit. No small print, all that crap. Yeah, so that's the main thing. It's a, 
And even, you know, we talk about liberation politics. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people don't understand it. And that's the way it is. But, you know, what people like myself, right, believe that, then let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. Right? What the hell's the harm in talking about it? But the man says, so no, no. No. Right? Dangerous shit. Right? <laughs> Free ideas. Well, how can that be dangerous for us? For him, maybe. <laughs> I think the propaganda is so strong about the dangers of just talking, right? And I'm not talking about the free speech that these right-wing hate mongers are talking about. So long as you don't use a copyrighted song or whatever, you can say whatever, right? As long as you're not stealing somebody's joke, you can say whatever. No, the real propaganda about allowing people to talk is like, let's say some college students want to do a red reading club where they're reading about communism or whatever. Then you invite somebody and then people will get scared like, oh, what? If I go to that, won't I get like arrested or something, right? That's what they've done where you can do that, but they're so scared to do that. Something inside them is like, oh no, I'm going to get in trouble. If somebody's talking to me about communism, oh my God, I got to close my ears because if I hear that, I'm going to get in trouble, right? Nobody's going to come and get you. Get in their database. Yeah. So that's what they've done is where they don't have to actually use explicit laws to say you can't do that because they've done such a good job scaring people about talking about certain topics. That's right. They're scared to death to talk about it. It's like people feel more comfortable talking about drugs or doing like, you know, scheduled narcotics than they feel comfortable like talking about Mao or Marx, you know, or communism. Mm -hmm. I was telling somebody that people feel much more comfortable flipping each other off than they do raising their fists in solidarity, right? Right, right. Right? And they do because they are almost like, wait, what does this mean? Isn't this like a political symbol? No, no, we can't do that. Yep. But taking pictures of flipping people off, that's okay. Yeah, it's like uh, what we like. What I'm experiencing right now in the in 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 in, in our community, right? We've had uh, neoliberals in our community that have sold off this uh, senior citizens institution, right? Right, the Cairo Senior Healthcare, and uh, wow, right? How the hell can a small group of people? 28 individuals sit up there and sell this institution that the community supported and built for the last 50 years, sell it without a word to us. In fact, saying that they, you know, that the, the state has given them the right to do whatever they want without our consent. Yeah, and uh, that's that neoliberalism right all the way down, right? in terms of money power, telling us that we don't count. Yet, whenever they want our support, we're supposed to give it with the unqualified, right? What do they need your consent for if they own everything yeah. and you don't own nothing? <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, that, that whole philosophy comes down in all these different ways right into our community, right? Going after, destroying our legacy doing all of these things to us and people are afraid because there might be a lawsuit involved. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so, oh, you can't say nothing, right? Can't do nothing. You can't be rude to these suckers, right? So as long as you talk nice, it's okay. And then they ignore you, <laughs> right? Do whatever the fuck they want. 
then you still got to suck their ass, right? Because you want to, you want to be uh, look good. It's 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 right there. So you want to know how it affects us, right down where we live. Then yeah, look around. You see it. What happened to the movement? Well, first I I, I need to get a clarification on that. The civil rights movement talked about rights that were deprived of us, deprived what we were deprived of had to do with the Constitution. So that's civil rights law. So the early stages, right? The voting rights. Okay, okay. Right. Okay. So those are kind of civil rights kind of things. We're talking about Malcolm, we're talking about about the Panthers. Now we're going into revolutionary movement. But really at one point both ended, right? Yeah. Even Martin Luther King died, right? Yep. And he died when he was starting the Poor People's Program, right? So when he started getting more socialist, he got taken out. Yep. So uh, something I didn't realize when I was a kid is I think a lot of people have this misconception that both movements, whether it's revolutionary or civil rights, it ended because they must have finished their job. It got done, right? What I came to understand later was that, no, all the leaders got killed. Got killed or bought off. Okay, this is my perspective, okay, as as an individual who got involved with the political movement. Well, the movement became very manipulative, especially when we began to delve into communism and socialism and see the influence of Stalinism, okay, and, 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 and all the negative shit that was there that whole thing of bureaucratic movement. And that's what happened, was that, that as our movement evolved, right, it, it veered to the right, and it veered towards a more bureaucratic style of work. So instead of bottom-up, it yeah. started becoming top-down again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And instead of promoting and developing the base, all it, all, all it wanted to do was manipulate and show how influential it was. So. In the end, then it was logical, right? That and we had two Asian groups that were real strong in terms of forming uh, a national communist movement, right? Uh, the Asian Study Group and uh, Iwar Kun. Right? The where where we took gas was in the late sixties, right? When COINTELPRO. Was initiated by the FBI. COINTELPRO is an organiz- is a program that was developed by the FBI to take out, particularly the Black movement and the American Indian movement, but any movement that was revolutionary, the Puerto Rican movement, to take out its leadership or discredit the leadership, or kill them. So, for listeners who have never heard of COINTELPRO, it might sound like some movie stuff, but this was a real program that the FBI ran in the late 50s to early 70s. And it stands for Counterintelligence Program. Yeah. And it was a series of covert and actually illegal projects conducted by the U.S. government. And who they targeted and surveilled, infiltrated, discredited, and disrupted were American political organizations, which means any revolutionary political group. So that not only means Black Panthers, but it also meant feminist organizations, anti-war organizations, civil rights, Black Power, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. It also includes environmentalists, animal rights organizations, 
indigenous people's movements, in mainstream media, I think a lot of people have heard about J. Edgar Hoover and how bad he was. Well, this was that program that he was running. Yeah. But Mo, you lived through it. So what did COINTELPRO do to the revolutionary movement? They did a number on the Panthers, man. They killed over uh, 30-something people. Oh, just and drove the organization on the ground. Then by that time, see, the, the, the Huey had taken the Panthers into a very bad place right, that he was dealing. He was a drug addict. When he comes out of prison, he's a drug addict. And um, starts promoting that in the central committee of the organization. It's a good thing that, you know, most of the rank and file across the country were good, honest revolutionaries. But uh, they have this cult of personality and this bureaucratic kind of centralism. So Huey becomes an icon before his time, right? And they have this thing about you can't question central leadership. Too much like dominance hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, exactly what it was. Well, another aspect that you just mentioned is drugs. That is another thing that that is mentioned when you look at what happened to revolutionary movements in the U.S. is the proliferation of drugs and especially like things like crack cocaine, which then there's also connections, right, with the CIA. Yep. Right? Whether intentional or not, like it got on the streets and that was another factor that also hurt the movement. Yep, yep. That tore us up. I used to drive by the Safeway parking lot on Washington and Central Avenue where Freeway Rick, right? The the organizer that that the CIA picked to promote crack cocaine, right, in the US. I I used to drive by when I used to see them guys all lined up buying crack, you know. I used to wonder what the hell that was about. Now I know. But that's like local shit that actually connects to a bigger international shit, right? Because that actually connects all the way back to Latin America, right? Oh, yeah. Well, it goes straight to Washington, D.C., right? The CIA, right? And uh, that's the that uh, Reagan years, Iran-Contra fiasco. Yep, yep, trying to raise money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And you don't need to go to any conspiracy sites or anything like that to learn more about this if you want to look this up. It's in any regular encyclopedia. It's in the Wikipedia also. It's like pretty well documented and it's just established history at this point. Yeah, yeah. Here's yeah. the other thing. Even if it's established history, I don't know if they teach it at school, but it is in verified history books. But that's like two different problems right there. What they teach in school versus like what's actually even in the history books. But yeah, that was a local problem that was part of a bigger thing, like sovereignty and messing with other nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 what it shows is the continuity of U.S. foreign policy mm -hmm. and U.S. domestic policy. It's all interconnected. Yep, 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 yep. It's all the same people. And it's all the same kind of thinking. So, of course, it's going to look the same here as it looks somewhere else because it's the same ghouls who think about everything the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, so we have all of that. You have the killing off of, 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 of all the strong people in the Panthers, independent, right? There's a reason why Huey and Bobby 
and a lot of the people in the Central Committee in Oakland, and it did, right? Because they were already compromised, right? So they're dealing with coke, right? Then, then there's the flooding of the communities with, with all that crack cocaine. I mean, I, re I remember when you could, for, for five bucks, how you could buy a rock, right? To, on the street when I lived in Little Tokyo. I mean, you know, so all that shit was there, you know? So, I, and then Jesse Jackson came along and his Rainbow Coalition. So all the top leadership of our, of our people on the left, right? Revolution, so-called revolutionary leadership all jumped on that bandwagon. And what is that? It's just reformism. Well, he wasn't going anywhere. He wasn't fighting for socialism. And then, right, then the big propaganda campaign against us, well, they wiped us out. So there, there ain't no more history, no more nothing of the institutions or the work that was done. They made people forget about them. And our problem, too, is that the movement people didn't stand up, didn't fight back, didn't talk about, look, this is what we've done. What the hell? Why are we so bad? Most of them still are afraid to say, yeah, I was a communist and proud of it. I say that, and people think I'm stupid. Well, maybe I am, but that's okay. I feel okay with that. <laughs> but do you think a lot of people are afraid to say that because they're so traumatized? Because they really work, right? Why did they kill off people? Why did they do all these bad things? Why did they get to people? As a scare tactic, right? You set an example, and then everybody else is like, oh, shit, well, look what happened to so-and-so. Yep. I better keep my mouth shut, right? Even going back to uh, the Japanese internment camps, right? Where people, some of the people who came after, they're like, well, I better listen to what they told me. I have to assimilate. I have to do cultural suicide, or they're going to come get me again, right? Yeah, well, I, I think that uh, there, there's a certain amount of that. Do you think also it's like shame? Yeah, yeah. You're using kind of a, 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 a logic and a framework that I, 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 I don't live it there. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know those kind of feelings. I'm being a little too sympathetic to them. <laughs> well, no, 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 that's okay because that's, that's that's something I should think about. I think, I mean, I've never been ashamed of being a communist. I've never been ashamed of being, you know, a revolutionary. Because you aren't ashamed, you don't understand why other people are ashamed. I don't see why. You know, you think it's just because of a uh, public shunning, like people would be like, "Look at this weirdo. He used to be a communist." Yeah, it could be. I mean, I I feel I feel that now. You know, okay. The, a lot of the people in the community, except that they can't deny that I never left. I've always been up front. I've always tried to stand up for our people, right? I've always tried to do what I believe, yeah? And I, and, 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 and I never tried to put nobody down that wasn't trying to put me down. But yeah, I, I think, you know, people's personal lives, that's why I think even today, even if people do make a mistake, and no big thing, right? Everybody makes mistakes. You just got to be able to fess up to it, right? If you can fess up to it, then, ah, oh, shit, it's easy to forgive. So I always tell people, you know, my thinking is, is that it's, it's easy to forgive. But we don't never forget, forget, you know, that we always know. So, you know, people could bullshit us, 
But if you do, you do at your own risk, right? You know, peril, hell. Because we, we, we remember, some of us do anyhow. So one of the biggest resources and best resources we have are all those old movement people, right? But they got to fess up, right? They got to do some self-criticism. And they got to do some, right? Asking for forgiveness and and, 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 and and making amends. But that ain't that hard. So do you think some of this is also personal politics where people don't want to come back and meet up some of the old revolutionaries or bring it up because they've had personal problems with certain people. They don't like so-and-so or so-and-so hurt them. Those kind of things also are involved with this. Yep, 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 yep. And they, you know, that's, that, that can't be the problem of making a mistake. Right? The problem is to perpetuate. So was it like you all were on your own or were there some established influences? Well, we did have. Okay, we, we had Communist Party influence in our communities for a long time because our people, I, I'm talking about all of them too, right? Japanese, Chinese, Korean, uh, all of had, you know, communist influence because that was the only really group that ever stuck up for us. So we've always had that kind of influence, but it was always, you know, the, the background was the Stalin, right? It's always pretty negative too. Terms of what he was doing over there, but I think from what what the the philosophy puts forward, I mean, you know, people can people can get behind that, can understand that, why people would be attracted to that. Yeah, that's why I like today. My, you know, my position on all of that left stuff is is that this is a new day. Today, Russia is an imperialist power now. Right, China is an imperialist power now. There ain't no more really socialist powers, and you know, and it's questionable about a lot of these countries that are calling themselves socialist, right? And they're not perfect. They can't be under imperialism anyhow, right? All that pressure. So we have to start anew. So let, we're gonna let's start. Let's start talking about what we want. Let's start talking about right. What are the laws? Huh? How are we supposed to treat each other, right? All of those kind of things. Guys like Cabral out in Africa, that's a bad dude, man. Tell us a little bit about Cabral. Who is he? Okay, I'm going to call Cabral. He's a, he was a revolutionary out of Guinea-Bissau. And back in the 60s, 70s, right, Portugal was the last open colonial country. And reactionary fuckers, right? Really terrible, but uh, he was a leader of of a group of uh, of a small African nation called Guinea-Bissau. He was so so profound. And he's the guy that that really emphasized class suicide. He said that those of us who are intellectuals who go to college and stuff like that, that that the, the most difficult and important things that we have to do is to create do. Class suicide, right? That doesn't mean you deny who you are. Just, man, you can't use your the 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 intellect to browbeat or put down somebody else, right? And that's what usually happens. And expect special privileges behind that. But Cabral 
because at, at, at Cabral did this great study of, of, of Guinea-Bissau, and when he he talked to these Western communists, right, and talked about being a Marxist, they had the nerve to tell him, "You can't be a Marxist." <laughs> he said, "Why not?" Now, what he talked about, you, your country doesn't have a proletariat, right? It's and 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 it's backward and it's black. So, he said, no way you could be a Marxist. He said, "Okay, I'm not a Marxist. I'm a dialectical materialist." No. <laughs> So then explain that, dialectical materialism for people who don't know. Yeah, okay. It's a natural creations, laws of natural creation. Natural creation is from the Big Bang, right? There's the formation of matter, to the development of stars, then the stars developing of more matter, the periodic chart, the second star formation. Opposing forces, that's where creation comes from. Right. That's the idea. So when we're thinking about physics, that makes sense, right? So how does that apply to politics then? Well, that our understanding that anytime you have a class society, then you have two opposing forces, right? There's a class that rules society and oppresses people, and there's a class of people that are being oppressed, right? And that, that these are always in, in contradiction to each other. So once you start off with that idea, understanding of class of class society, and capitalism is a class society, then you understand. Yeah, there it is. You have the the the, the owners of property, right? Of big property, and the workers that have to make make do, right? In that society, so. That's what it is. So, so dialectical materialism is the laws of natural creation summed up. And what revolutionaries do is study these laws, right? And use the laws to make revolution. And what the laws show us that that socialism is the next logical stage of human development, right? It ain't like it's something we made up or some other bullshit, right? How it shows that is that with the overwhelming majority of people, the workers and peasants of this of the world, and we have this one percent that's going to live for the last uh, ten thousand years, right? Ever since the agricultural revolution and the accumulation of wealth became possible, that they've taken us to a point now where we can naturally. Provide the five basic needs, right? Food, clothing, and shelter, jobs, health care, education, all the needs of every human being on this planet. We can provide that now. So that's what capitalism has, has presented to us now. This problem that we have, we can take care of everybody on this planet. So capitalism then isn't like necessarily shouldn't have ever happen. It's like a necessary step for us to get to the next thing. Yeah. And I think that's another thing people don't realize is that they think socialists are like saying, oh, we fucked up ever creating capitalism. We should have just went straight to socialism. And it's like, no, you need capitalism to get to socialism. And it's not even like forcing something. It's going to naturally happen in this way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to get a little bit inside baseball, if we're getting into philosophy here, there's two types of dialectical materialists, right? There's like the right dialectical materialists and then the left or the revolutionary. 
dialectical materialist, right? And so to sum it up, you're representing the left side. The right are saying these opposing forces and oppression is a good thing. We should just keep it that way, right? Because it's natural in nature. Nature, big animals eat little animals. So this actually goes way back between reactionaries, especially like libertarians versus socialists, where they see the same thing. They just have different analysis of the same things, right? Or emphasize different things. Or emphasize different things. And then you have like centrists who you don't know where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you could uh, take the two sides and merge it yeah, yeah. into something. Ice cream and shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mao has this uh, saying. He says, uh, you don't have to do anything too radical, right, in order to start, you know, with this understanding. What we, in order for us to have socialism, we need elimination of imperialism. Okay, if you don't eliminate imperialism, then you can't have socialism, consolidated socialism. You can have socialist construction, right? Built towards socialism, but what's it called? And then you just said, lean to the left, not lean to the right. Lean to the left, right? Means that you emphasize the people, always people over profit, people over everything else, right? To, to, to the well-being of the people and and the well-being meaning the full development of the potential of each human being. You can see the influence of Marx and Mao, but you could also see the influence of Chinese philosophy in Mao because that sounds a lot like Taoism where the world tends to lean right. So for the Taoist, we have to lean left to the people, to the weak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's why Mao appealed so much to people of color is because unlike Marx or some of the people who got inspired by Marx, like these intellectuals like you talked about, right? Mao was much more of an anti-imperialist than he was an anti-capitalist, right? Like the Red Book seems like a lot of the passages, everything is about anti-imperialism, which then from there, of course, is anti-capitalist. But the real problem is imperialism, is the oppression of people. We're not leaning towards people. And just because you're anti-capitalist doesn't mean you're necessarily pro-people. And I think that's my analysis anyway of why he speaks so much to yellow people, brown people, black people. Because we felt it more than anybody else. It's not just about capitalism. For white folks, yeah, maybe it is about just being, you know, a worker and not getting some of that capital spread to you. But for us, it's that plus imperialism, plus racism, plus colonialism, plus oppression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in the U.S., can't buy property, no reparations, can't vote, can't marry who you want slave labor on railroads to institutional slave labor in the plantations. White people can metaphorically relate, but they never had to face this type of American imperialism. Yep, yep, yep. So if capitalism is corporate dictatorship, imperialism is just straight up dictatorship. This is why we have the term oppressed, because it's invisible to everybody else other than the oppressed people. So when you hear terms like imperialism or empire when it relates to the U.S. and you always just chalked it up to hyperbole, I've told you what it literally means, at least domestically. So imagine that done to foreign bodies and foreign countries, then that's what empire is. 
So it's not hyperbole. People only think that because they don't know what the context of these words are or what these words mean. And unfortunately, they don't care, right? They just want to dismiss it. Yeah, 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 because that, that, that's the reality. I mean, people want to separate all of that shit from each other. But yeah, that's, that's our reality, man. So that's why like, people talk about uh, fascism, right? We don't experience fascism in America. <laughs> and, you know, the, who doesn't, right? Maybe if you're white, you don't, right? But people of color have always experienced fascism. Yeah. Because what's another term for fascism? Colonialism, racism, right? You could all run all of that shit down, man. Where the the, the human being is, right? Is, is put down. You 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 ain't a real human being. You ain't got no rights and shit like that. The fuck is that, right? So you can hear that shit from these silly ass white people all the time, <laughs> man. Right? We don't live in fascism. I I was in Germany in the service. I spent two years over there. And when I talk to the German workers over there, man, most of the ones I talk to love Hitler, man. Yeah? He didn't have the Gestapo down their throat or anything. They all lived, you know, lives as long as they shut their eye to that strange smell that was coming out of the fucking, you know, uh, the 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 cremation crematoriums and shit like that, and or or close their eyes to the Gestapo coming down, right, marching people off, and we do that right now. Close our eyes to the police killings, right? That's the banality of evil, right? Yeah, is where yeah. we think of evil or fascism like it's supposed to be this grand, like super villainous thing that we see in comic books or in movies. But it's really just regular people just being complicit and in denial and ignoring the problems that they do see, right? Yep, yep, yep. That's true evil. That's why it's called the banality of evil. Because when you actually see real evil, it's very boring. Yep, yep, yep. It's not yep, exciting. Yep. You can't make a movie out of it. It's just bad shit people are okay with every day. Stuff you put up with. Yep, yeah. That's right. Yeah. When we look at the human experience, I think we have to look at it in its totality, right? And the Western Marxists have fucked this all up, too. Because <laughs> they, they, they have this shit about... Uh, if you want to know about human history, the the whole history is about class struggle. Yeah. Yeah. That's bullshit. <laughs> Marx may have written that. He never emphasized it. I, I don't think. He may have, you know. But the reality now is that with uh, Lucy, are you familiar with Lucy? One of the early humans. Clearly shows that she was bipedal. Right? So, Yeah. She's probably one our earliest ancestor, right? But how old is she? Fucking two million years old. So that means that we've been roaming around this planet for over two million years and developing, right? So then you apply the laws of dialectical materialism to our development. And you'd see that we have to develop an internal basis, right, for our stability, change, stuff like that, right? You have conditions on the outskirt, outside, but inside, right? So this is one of the things that, that, that I experienced during the humble chair, doing the vision quest, right, where you go without food and water for four days, right, four days and four nights, 
man. You stew in your own juices and you pray. Are you talking about inside of uh, a sweat lodge? No, uh, up in the mountains. You go up and have a medicine man put you up. So what did you see? Mother love. Mm-hmm. Or the human species, I think, the mothers have this bodacious thing about protecting their young. And we need that because right? our young are so helpless for so long. Right? Um, so, two, we love to fuck. <laughs> We're attracted to each other like it won't quit. Three, we have this need or desire to do our fair share, to be responsible for each other. And four is the, is, is the kicker, right, is that curiosity, right? We want to know how it works, what's over there, all of that kind of stuff. So with these four as the primary kinds of emotions that we have, that stabilized our ability to survive as long as the environment provided enough food. This came to you in a vision quest? Yeah. This realization? Yeah. And, you know, I'm just thinking about that. So that goes part of our thing about, you know, where does knowledge come from, right? It comes from all different kinds of sources. Practice is the main one, but you can get it from other different sources, too such as Vision Quest. So the Neanderthals, right? They're just spread out all over the world, and they survive for a couple hundred thousand years. But us, Homo sapiens sapiens, right, are only about 60,000 years old. In 60,000 years of our evolution, we colonized every continent on this planet except Antarctica. Well, we did better than the bugs, right? I mean, so we're adaptable and we're survivable. I mean, humans are a motherfucker when it comes down to surviving and spreading. So the laws say that we ain't got no business not surviving. And, 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 and what's happened was that the bigger picture is, okay, is that 10,000 years ago is about approximately when the uh, agriculture revolution begins to take place. People all over the world are start figuring out, okay, if I could pick this sucker and eat it every year, then maybe if I plant that baby, right, it becomes the point where we have enough food, food becomes wealth, and we can accumulate that sucker, right? So we can develop uh, settlement living and shit like that. Also, at that time, right, I think the, the primary mode of organization of the group, right, which is probably 20, 30 people, is the collective thing, right? And if you have a collective thing, collective organization, then you have, there are, you know, just biologically, right, there are more women than there are men. So they call that the matriarchy, right? And they talk about the grandmothers run the show, things like that. But after the accumulation, agriculture revolution, then the basis of who controls that accumulation, right, comes in. And that's when you have the overthrow of the matriarchy and the patriarchal revolution. And you begin to have minority rule. 
So patriarchy and minority rule go together. And after that, you have societies where evolves into independent farmers and stuff like that, like like Rome right, at the beginning, and then these guys come together under a leader and they go out and wage war and enslave other people. So you have a both a feudal kinds of thing and slavery simultaneously developing around the world. But always it's minority rule now. Yeah. Okay. So we've come to capitalism and then capitalism to imperialism. And if you look at nature, you see that nature has this way of posing problems to the evolutionary process. And since you've got all this, this huge amount of time and this huge space and all these different combinations at work, those problems all get solved eventually, right? And it moves to stability. Of course, stability just means that, you know, you have uh, an equilibrium going on that's uh, that can last a little while. It ain't forever, but it lasts a while. Okay, so in the development of uh, of human society, uh, we've reached the point where the positiveness, positive development of capitalism, has run its course. Right, so that monopoly capitalism is no longer a positive force anymore. We've evolved through feudalism and, 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 and slavery to capitalism. If you look at human history uh, or history of our planet, you see that there's an age of empires, right, from 10,000 years to present almost, right? Big empires. But that these empires had stability for a while, but they all break up. So to understand that there's nothing that lasts forever. When you're saying we're in equilibrium or stability, that doesn't mean we're in a good balance, but more like we're in an equilibrium of neoliberalism, where neoliberalism has figured out a way to self-sustain itself for a time. But you said all things eventually end, right? Right. Empires end. So, you know, we've got to figure that's a pretty good thing. And when you see the development of of, of of capitalism, one of the big things that uh, ones that I studied anyhow was like the English uh, capitalism developed in England. They talk about the enclosures and stuff like that, right? And the ripping off of the English peasantry. But that's only one country. And if you look at Western Europe, you see that under feudalism, there was this first colonialism. Right, so that we, we think about imperialism in terms of two two types. One is imperialism under feudalism, which is eventually turns out to be colonialism, and then through that primitive accumulation of colonialism, that they bring all that wealth to Western Europe, and that's where capitalism develops. So that's where the English benefit from all of that wealth that's sucked in, right? And then capitalism flourishes, develops, and flourishes. And then turns into monopoly capitalism, and turns into imperialism. And imperialism is the second stage, right, of of, of, of of colonialism, right, where it's money now going into invest and rip off. So even with this timeline, then you were talking about laws of nature, right, 
and uh, how that eventually shows us that we'll get to socialism. So even with capitalism, you first needed feudalism to accumulate the wealth to turn into capitalism, right? So it naturally happened, right? Yeah. So if you have all the capital, it's only a matter of time before it turns into capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then how do we get to socialism? Or why do we get to socialism? At this stage, at the current stage of the world, we see that imperialism is totally fucking over the third world. So that the principal contradiction in the world is imperialism versus people of color, right? It's a national colonial question as the principal contradiction. You look at the U.S., you see Black Lives Matter, stuff going on on the reservations, right? The attack, the, the pipeline and the ores and all of that kind of shit. Uh, you look at uh, at the borders, see all that stuff going on with the immigrants. It's not the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat, right? White people will try to tell you that. But we fought like hell in the 70s to establish two fundamental contradictions in America, right? And we established that national colonial question, right? Racism and all of those things that the white man tried to ignore. So in the U.S. too, right, that the national colonial question is the principal contradiction. What's the national colonial contradiction? In this country, it comes out as people of color, right? In the world, it comes out as Western European countries and in the U.S., right, imperialism, waging war against people of color all over the world and the planet, okay? You mustn't forget that yet. And the planet, waging war against the planet and all its children. And that if that's the case, then the people, okay, us, have got to remember that we have two million years of existence on this planet. And we're here because of this planet, right? Therefore, don't we owe something? Don't we have an obligation, right, to this planet to keep from polluting it and making it unlivable for future generations, right? That's what we're doing, right? And the national colonial question brings that out because it deals with a time or, 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 relates from a time when we lived in harmony with nature. We lived in harmony with our planet, right? That's where our germs, genes were nurtured at, right? And the home country, mother country, they were cut loose, right? Ripped off the land and become part of the international proletariat. But we have this obligation, right, that comes from all of that time. We have to fight for the land, so that's what the national colonial question is about, right? Is, is, is the principal contradiction is to liberate the land and its people. Okay, so that our thing then, like in this country, would be for us to figure out how we want to live as long as it's not exploiting somebody else. And then let's start organizing in the base. And the base is for us to get organized. So it's, 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 it's small groups of people getting organized, right? And developing and helping each other. And why that's the solution goes back all the way to those two million years of our evolution. 
That's what the hunter-gatherer groups are like, about, right? Working to support each other. And what was their main goal? Survival. So that's our main goal. It's our survival. Mao looked at all of this and said, shit, there ain't no contradiction that we can face as human beings that we can't solve. So yeah, let's get to work and start solving this contradiction. To kind of summarize my understanding of what you just said is that we have this long history, not just like post-agricultural history where you can look at it from a class struggle perspective, but it goes back even to Lucy, as you mentioned, right? Which is about survival. And the principal contradiction is about is contradictory to try to do things to kill yourself or to oppress yourself or to ruin things for yourself. So much like the hunter-gatherers where they could have just died off or they figured out a way to survive, which they did. And again, now we're at the brink again where we're not only killing each other and oppressing each other, but we're also oppressing and destroying the planet itself this time. And it's either we get to socialism or we die. But the hope comes from that every other time we've been faced with a situation where we're at the brink, where we could die off, we didn't. We figured it out. So am I reading you correctly? Yep, yep, yep. So here's the point I think a lot of people don't understand if they're not socialists. When people say that eventually we're going to get socialism, it's not a threat. It's not saying we're going to go around killing everybody until we get to socialism. It's more about this analysis of nature, meaning we got two choices. We're destroying the planet. And the way that accumulation works, even prior to capitalism, is plundering the planet, right? So eventually, we kill ourselves or we get to some kind of system where we keep living. And so we're just calling that system socialism, right? But it's either we figure out a way where we no longer plunder the planet, you know, some steady state system where we're no longer destroying the planet that we live on. Or we do destroy it and we all die. Yeah. But that's what we mean by saying that we'll eventually get to socialism. Because the other option is if we don't, we die. Yep. Yep. And not die as in we'll kill you if you don't become a socialist, but die as in your economic system is going to kill all of us. So it's kind of like a heart doctor warning a patient, you're going to die. It's not a threat saying the doctor is going to kill you. Instead, it's an educated opinion from the doctor that if you continue to live your life this way, you're going to die right, right. because you will never not destroy the planet under capitalism. Ultimately, you're just taking material goods, material things from the planet and converting it to money. So even if you're saying, well, we could be tech, we could be digital. Digital still uses electricity. It still uses power and it still has hardware. All of that comes from the planet. And even if you're just siphoning electricity, siphoning just power that still comes from coal or oil like it comes from something right we don't have sustainable energy so it all comes from the planet and even for us to get there if we did get to some kind of sustainable energy and there was no more scarcity that's still socialism anyway it's some futuristic socialism right all roads have to lead to socialism otherwise we die right exactly yeah it's like that line from terminator 2 Come with me if you want to live. Yeah. So we have no choice. If we want to live, we have to get there. We have to fight to get there. It's like uh, when they solved the uh, matrix of the unified field. Now you're bringing up the unified field theory. Right. Of uh, the nuclear forces and cosmological forces, right? 
uh, gravity, right? Electricity and magnetism, the weak force, and the strong force of the nuclei. Well, that was the, that was the big big thing, right? To solve how they interact with each other. We live in a simultaneous universe of ten and twenty six dimensions. Okay, so for listeners who are having a hard time keeping up with Mo, you're now talking about string theory, right? So all this stuff, anything's possible. <laughs> Shit, 10 and 26 dimensions. Why can't we solve that? You know? So, yeah, the road is rough, but the future is bright. (laughs) (laughs) So this is why, after all the shit you've seen and been through, why you can still laugh, why you can still smile, why you still have hope. Yep, yep, yep. Is because humans, we always find a way. Yep. We have this experience back in 2013-14 where six guys at Pelican Bay, most notorious, high-profile torture prison in the U.S., where solitary confinement as the base, six guys that ain't supposed to even be talking to each other, figure out a way to communicate, form the core of the prison hunger strike and work stoppage. and. Fucking 30,000 prisoners are involved in every fucking institution in California. Now, how do you do that? (laughs) Yeah. And no matter how shitty it gets, we'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just got to keep plugging. You can't give up. Yeah. Now, another thing about you is you're a martial artist. What was the first martial art that you did? Oh, it's judo. When I was growing up, you know, the Japanese was still in segregation, right, in the 40s. And the area that I grew up in is on the west side, called the southwest L.A. In Japanese, it's called Seinan. And the Seinan district had the largest Japanese concentration in L.A. And we had a judo dojo that was famous because our teacher was one bad cat. I, you know, I, I've always dreamed that, you know, because especially after I learned about Okinawa Tef, right, how they evolved, right, that uh, is my understanding, anyhow, right, that, that after the, the Japanese feudal invasion and conquest of the islands, and then the, telling the people they can't have any kind of weapons and shit like that, so those young men go to China and train there, right, and then come back. And begin training their own people, and using all these uh, fucking you know farm tools, and then taking on the samurai, right? Kicking their ass, right? Yeah, that's the kind of martial arts we gotta we gotta promote and develop, right? There to defend our people and for our, our and now we know enough about public health that all this shit we can pass on to everybody to get more healthy and more independent and self determining, right? So, yeah, so that's, that's, that's the vision, I think, that, uh, you know, we have to propagate as a liberation martial artist, right? Is that, yeah, goddamn, right? Make us healthy, make us strong, and make us independent. Nobody can tell us what's what, right, that uh, we can determine for ourselves. You just tell me what's your argument, <laughs> then it will go from there, right? And 
Because art is interesting, right? Every society that's gone through any kind of class differentiation, and maybe even not, right? There will be, even in hunter-gatherer societies, there always had to be some cat that was tough, that, or women too, right? That could defend themselves, take care of business, right? So, so all, of, all through that, man, you know? So people have been studying this shit forever. So fuck, man, you know, just all these different kinds like capoeira. You know, I, I don't, still don't understand capoeira, but it looks interesting. And I like that, you know, <laughs> doing the drum and the, that one string thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, if Marxists think the history of the world is about class struggle, then the martial artists believe the history of the world is not about class struggle, but just struggle. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just about overcoming. Yeah. Whatever it is, each other, the land, near death, extinction points, just overcoming and figuring it out and just keep on trucking somehow. Yeah. Yep. Slavery, yep. invasion, disease, just struggle. Yep, 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 yep. So, yeah, so the martial arts is just like the politics, right? Yeah, we can figure it out and, and show that it's, it's good for us. For our health and our well-being, yeah. You know, we've talked about this before where we talked about a lot of martial arts eventually turns into reactionary politics. I think a lot of reactionary politics in general started out originally as liberation type of stuff, right? And then it gets corrupted, right? It's like learning how to fight to fight the samurai. And then people are like, oh, you're pretty good. Let me pay you to fight for our side, yeah, right? right. Oh, you learn how to protect yourself, you know, back in uh, China, let's say. A lot of those early martial artists became bodyguards, right? Okay, and then they started protecting the lives of the rich, right? So uh, a lot of these reactionary things started out as liberation things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of it isn't then about reinventing the wheel. A lot of it is to correct the course and get it back to where it was. Right. And that's how you could stay fluid and dynamic is it doesn't have to look the same way as it did before because we're in a different context. But the intention, the intention of liberation should remain the same. Yeah. We should always be leaning left. Yeah. Right. What that looks like in the future, who knows with all kinds of technology that we have. But the point is, the intention is, is to lean left. Right. Lean towards the people. Oh, always lean to the left. Yeah. And leaning left going back to what I learned from talking to you is doesn't just mean left in economic terms. Leaning left means leaning towards the people. Yep, yep, yep. All right, Mo, are you ready? Yep. All right, good. So you wanted to add a few more thoughts and I didn't want to rob you of that opportunity. And we already discussed some of it over the phone. So let's just kind of run through some of these things. Let's talk about some of the points in your life that you felt like shaped you. One of the earliest memories you had, you said, was of a sailor and an incident in a bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was riding in the back of the bus. We lived in the country at the time, and my dad was uh, had just come back from Colorado, rejoined the family. And so we were moving back driving back to L.A., when I looked up and saw this guy glaring down at me with this hate look, yeah, I didn't know what to do with that as a little kid, so. What did he do? 
he just looked at me and gave me the finger. And how old were you? I guess about eight, nine. It was something you can never forget? Yeah, right. Do you think it was the ability for somebody who's an adult to even despise a child that much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it blew my mind. I, I, I didn't understand. It wasn't until later, right, as an adult. And uh, while I was in the service, and one of the guys in my outfit, a black guy, was fucked up one day, and he was sitting in front of this mirror talking about, I can't help that I'm black. And uh, it was tripping on him, you know. Why would somebody say something like that? Then I began, you know, then I start to really understand what the, what the, what the kind of harm to children that racism does, right? And how it's different from other hate and that the hate is so great that even children aren't protected from it. Right, 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 right. It's just it's all encompassing. And, you know, and then, uh, yeah, yeah. I forget somebody hates somebody, not, not even know who they are or anything about them, you know, except the color of their skin. You know? That's a pretty sick shit, yeah. And another moment that you mentioned that really shaped you and made you decide to be a revolutionary, and, and you also said is the reason why you never turned your back on that, is your time in Japan in the early 70s going for a yep. peace demonstration? Well, no, they, they have every year in August at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they have these world conferences against atomic bombing and war. And uh, hooked up with the first delegation that came out of the United States that went to Japan. So I had a chance to go with them. Then it was Quakers? Yeah, with the, with the Quakers. And uh, I'd never been to Japan before. Yeah. This was in 1971? Right. And uh, you know, I experienced uh, what happens in the city of Hiroshima on August 6th. Uh, like I was sharing, you know, the kids walk around the kids in school, right? They had carried the pictures of all the kids that died from the atomic bombing. And uh, it seemed like every time I turned around, there were young people walking with these pictures, right? Through town and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, that, that just really fucked me up. Well, in the evening, they what they do is they, they take these little boats, paper boats, right? They put candles on them. And they float them down the different rivers of uh, Hiroshima. And I uh, participated in that ceremony. Then was walking back. I saw this temple, so I went into the temple, the graveyard, and into a kind of a bamboo clumping that they had there. And I sat down there, and uh, yeah, I, 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 I was really troubled, right? Why all these young people had to die like that? And you know, you go through that process. Wow, you know, Japan bomber harbor. But I'm a history buff, so I like that. So, you know, the U.S. and Japan have been fighting in China for a decade before that, right? Before the bombing of Pearl Harbor and that the squeezing of resources going to Japan, and so that you know, well, they were fighting over who's going to rip off China, right? So I just, uh, I became an anti-imperialist, right? But uh, I had the, you know, inclination, but uh, I, I, I totally committed to anti-imperialism. 
and the imperialism had to go. That night, you made a commitment to yourself that you were anti-war, anti-imperialism? Yes, yeah. And it sounds like that story also relates to your previous story about the hatred you faced as a kid, because you saw all these pictures of young Japanese kids who were killed in Hiroshima who looked just like you as a kid. And so somebody hated them enough that they could drop a bomb on them and incinerate them all at once. Yep, yep, yep. You know, one of the things I found out too, right, was that uh, the Hiroshima Atomic Bomb Museum exposed all of that, right? That the the bomb wasn't necessary. Japan had already been defeated both in Asia and in the Pacific. That uh, the bomb was uh, was just was an ex- experiment, right? If you look at the, the the terrain of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? Hiroshima is a flat alluvial plain of of the river system. Nagasaki is up against these uh, volcanic uh, mountains and stuff like that. So it's a whole lot of ravines and stuff like that. A different kind of terrain, and that's what they're saying to see what the bomb would do, an aerial you know blast would do. With the people living in this kind of kind of conditions, yeah. So, but yeah, it was just a fucking experiment. Well, you were used to experiments also at the Japanese concentration camps, right? Yeah, well, you know, we were studied. They had commissioned studies on us, so that you know that the uh, and the book that came out on the study of us was called the Chrysanthemum and the Sword, and it was going to be used in the occupation of Japan, right? And even though the study was unethical and the findings racist, it's still studied. Yep. Yeah, round it up, put it in camp, see what we would do. People would fight back or whatever, you know, or what level or what kind of fighting back could take place. And this is where science meets racism, race science, right? Because a lot of the myth about docile Asians, submissive Asians became solidified and became science. Because of this study, yeah, yeah, but, uh, I think the conclusion was that uh, that we, we came from a very authoritarian society, and that uh, the boss, the rulers, said uh, you had to be a certain way, and that's the way uh, people as a whole tended to go. So that docility comes in there, yeah. I think every country in the world, other than the U.S teaches about the atomic bombing of Japan as being needless and that it was preventable, that Japan was trying to surrender? Makes sense. That's exactly what was going on. I mean, they had gotten all the way to Iwo Jima, right? So the next step was uh, Okinawa. Or they did invade Okinawa. So This study is also used to justify the atomic bombing of the Japanese. Because the Japanese are so docile and submissive to the emperor, according to the study, they worship the emperor like a deity, that the Japanese would fight to the death like the kamikaze unless the emperor surrendered. And the only way for the emperor to surrender was to drop those bombs. But anybody who knows anything about military history or about Japan knows the emperor had no power. The country was already run by the military. Yes. I mean, think about how ridiculous that sounds. The emperor is your god. It's the same kind of shit they say about North Korea. 
which is partially probably reinforced by the same study because it reinforces the myth about the Asians. Yep. The model minority myth is really based on this myth, that Asians listen to orders by authority, that we're like worker ants. We have no soul, we have no autonomy, we have no free will. We just do as we're told. But they also said that about the slaves. Yep. I guess only rich white people have souls and autonomy. Right. But because of this, they'll just say it's science. And once they say it's science, you can't argue with it, even though it's their dubious science. It's the one-two punch. Round up the Japanese, use them to create some bogus study, then bomb Japan, then use this study as plausible deniability. It's like, we had to do it. So the rounding up of Japanese Americans and the bombing of Japan weren't isolated incidents. They were coordinated. Right, right, right. Well, the U.S. lives in its own bubble, right, where it's always the hero of every story. The propaganda of the victors, yeah. And then you had also mentioned uh, a moment in your life that you were very proud of where you were doing security for an anti-war protest at a Marine base. Yes, yeah, yeah. We have a, you know, California's got this uh, huge uh, Marine base, the West Coast uh, Center for the Marines over at Camp Pendleton, right outside of Oceanside. And uh, a lot of racist shit coming out of the effects of the Vietnam War, so Asian people were being affected all throughout California, especially around there. And uh, we had a friend, Japanese lady, that uh, participated in the civil rights struggle and turned to the internet, saw that it was so hopeless the way, you know, that uh, she turned to the anti-war struggle, the anti-appearance struggle, and ran a coffee shop, anti-war coffee shop in, uh, in Oceanside. And uh, they were organizing this uh, active duty Marine anti-war demonstration. And it never happened before, right? Active military were doing the demonstration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These were Marines. Yeah, 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 yeah. Straight up. So like I was saying, I was sharing, right? One of the guys, this young, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, young dude, right, just said, uh, no, I ain't going back there. They'd never done nothing to me, and I ain't going there. You're talking about Vietnam. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, uh, so I was proud to be part of the security for him, you know, for that. Yeah, it made me feel really good that there's this, uh, you know, there's this, there's a thread of, of, of righteousness that goes through all people. But uh, here it was, and, you know. So when I think about it, you know, I think, well, well that was the redemption for that. That dude at Santa Anita, right? And, and the riot there where the, the young guy staring at me and my mom with this 50 caliber machine gun, right? Scared as hell, you know, and he could have just touched that sucker off and me and my mom and my little sister would have been blown away. So that was the first time where you felt solidarity with not just people of color, but even with white people struggling against imperialism. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So that, that that convinced me that you know that you can't stereotype people, but you know you should be wary. <laughs> and then you also wanted to highlight some of the work you did with the Asian hardcores, the community work, like working with seniors, feeding them, taking them to shop, spending time with them. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, well, the thing that we learned or saw from the Panthers and their Serve the People program and the development of the organization, right, was that you had to politically educate people so that they would understand why they were fucked up, right, due to the racism, economic oppression, and all that kind of stuff. And then the general content of American propaganda is to make people of color feel like we're less than human. So in order for us to regain our humanity, we had to figure out how to do that. And the way to do that was to do serve the people work, right? So we recruited and, and, and got these young, young knuckleheads and did political education. And then when they were ready, right, took them out to do community work, working with youngsters, working with seniors, right, and, and, and helped them develop their own positive self-image. Right? And, 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 and give, give them a reason to be clean and a reason to be, you know, straightened up and become a revolutionary. And we used to have these uh, entry portals, right, where people came from overseas or from wherever, right, plantation, and came to these uh, places where we congregated and learned how to deal with the, what was going on. So the little Tokyo's, uh, Chinatowns in Hawaii, they had Honolulu, they had a place where the, uh, the people coming off the plantation would go to called Hell's Half Acre, Honolulu. They destroyed that pretty quick, right? The Italians still got that in New York, right? The Hell's Kitchen, but, uh, you know, Koreatown. But we have these places where, uh, where we're, we're concentrated at, and that's a, uh, I think that's a, uh, important for us to feel good about if that's what we want, right? I mean, we have a choice about assimilation, integration, or self-segregation, but uh, it's okay. Before, we had segregation and we didn't have a choice. Now we have integration and we ain't got a choice for self-segregation, which is bullshit. Right? In order to be free and equal, you have to have choices. Yeah, we, we. I encourage everybody, you know, that I, that I know, to go out there, explore, see what you like. So people need autonomy. You can't force them to go one way or the other. They need to be able to choose on their own, and they need the rights to do that. Right, right. That's a self-determination, yeah. Each individual has that right. What were you saying earlier about Hawaii? Yeah, yeah, that uh, they had this uh, huge ghetto there called Hell's Half Acre, was, uh, was one of, if not the toughest neighborhood in Honolulu. And uh, they destroyed that pretty pretty quick after the war. Who did? The government, yeah. Original kind of gentrification kind of stuff. And what was the demographic of that area? Yeah, Japanese people. And for people who don't know, ghetto actually means, I mean, now we mean it to mean slum because that's what they've turned into because they've been so disenfranchised. Right. And it actually connects to the original definition of ghetto, which is a restricted or isolated, segregated area for a certain group. So ghetto actually means a segregated group for a minority. And then you segregate them, you restrict them, and that's why it turns into a slum. So people think of these areas as a bad area, but it becomes bad 
not because people came together and they made it bad, but because you forced them there and then you restricted them and then you took so much from the community and restricted them that it became bad. So it's not like something that organically rose up. It's more like it was something forcibly created. And of course, something like that then is not going to be a utopia. If anything, it's used the other way as a place to mistreat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's just, that was classic, like, uh, you know, my wife, Misako, when, when, she, when she first came over, when they, they thought about Little Tokyo, I said, well, why do I want to come to the United States and go to a slum, right? right? Go to a extension of the downtown. But the shit, it wasn't our fault, <laughs> right? I mean, the man had these, you know, the, they call it redlining in those days, right? Where they, they would, the banks wouldn't advance any kind of money for people to fix up the neighborhood, stuff like that. Yeah. So a lot of times these communities are blamed, just like homeless are blamed for their lot in life, but it's more like they're the victims. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Straight up. I mean, that that's what the, this country's propaganda has always been about, right? You turn the victims into perpetrators of all kind of stuff. And, 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 and in a sense, right, there's a logic there, right? Because if you're a minority, so-called minority, then work is hard to find. Just trying to make a living and surviving is a difficulty. So always there's going to be a certain percentage of people going to be formed up into these antisocial gangs and stuff like that. You're putting them in a pressure cooker. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then blame them. Yeah. So that's the history of victim blaming. Thank you. Yeah. Another thing that you mentioned that was real interesting was about your work, the Asian hardcores, their work with drug addicts and trying to get them clean. Yeah. Well, we started out, there was a lot of people, right? The drugs were, uh, there was an epidemic in the community. I mean, yeah. And uh, and nobody wanted to talk about it. So that was one of, another one of the things that uh, that I saw in the in our community that uh, was pure bullshit, right? The leadership was talking about, oh yeah, we're good this, They're promoting this model minority operation bootstrap model of Japanese people. And fuck, all you had to do is go to J Town, right? See all the poor people there. Hanging out, or you go to step this bowling alley that everybody used to go hang out at holiday bowl, and you just wait till two o'clock when the bars close, and watch everybody come stumbling in. And uh, there was this whole subculture that dealt with drugs, dealt with uh, criminal activity, uh, you know, and uh, it existed, and then that's what. Uh, we worked on, right, was to, to recruit people, get people, you know, we could recruit them. And I was part of that bar scene, too, so, you know, just talking to people that I knew that uh, talked about wanting to get off drugs and shit, how drugs and alcohol and stuff. And then the people coming out of prison. We had quite a few people in prison, man. That's why we need to go into the joint now, right? Find out. We got all this oppression going on with the Southeast Asian sisters and brothers, right? Coming over here, man. You know, they, they, 
if you have that much oppression, then you know, there's got to be a reaction to survive on our part, and we're going to get into trouble. Can you talk to us about the kick pad, the crash pad? Yeah, okay, yeah. That the, So one of the things that we did was that we had a, a bunch of, you know, we had a bunch of guys, and uh, we, we had no place to take them. So a couple of our friends had an apartment. Yeah, that's what we do. We started the kick pad and crash pad, right? Where you, you came to clean up, and if you cleaned up, then you could leave if you felt like it, or you could stay, but then you had to put up with the, you know, what we were promoting, right? Which was to clean up, to go out there and, and, and work and seduce, serve the people programs like that. After a while, the community was able to support you all in your project and get the Asian hardcores a house, right, to use for this? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the first house we had, the old landlord let us use the place in exchange for us taking care of the of the yard, stuff like that. Was Dr. Noguchi, coroner at the time, the city. And then... Uh, uh, SC redevelopment was expansion was taking place, and so they had kicked a lot of people out of their out of the houses, but there were some houses left, and uh, they weren't going to start building on those land on the land for a while. So one of the brothers went and figured out, you know, went and talked to them. And we got a, we got a whole house for a dollar a month, dollar a year. So that's what we did. We we took over a house that was our thirty second street house, and uh, we ran a, a a regular pad out of there. Yeah, yeah. we took uh, women with kids into the program. We had you know young guys, older guys. So we had a a going thing, and the community supported us. Right, brought us food, gave us donated cars, all kind of shit. So. We didn't, we didn't really need any money. So specifically a place to kick the drug habit. So that's why you call it a kick pad. Yeah, yeah. And then one of the other things you were very proud of was your work doing security, protecting black steel workers in Fontana from the KKK because they were picketing. Yeah, 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 yeah. At, uh, at that time, the KKK was active in the Southland. This is in California. Yeah, yeah. Right here and right around LA, in the Fontana, man, uh, Kaiser had a steel plant there, and they had a large uh, black uh, working class community there working at the plant, and uh, they were being harassed by the KKK openly. So, to, you know, uh, uh, the leadership of the community and the union. Decided that you know that they were going to show these white boys that they this ain't the South. We ain't going to put up with all that bullshit. So they had a demonstration down there and uh, walked right through town, right through the white side of white side of town. The whole works, yeah. And uh, we were part of that. Uh, we weren't the total security. We were part of the security there. But uh, I, I was very proud of that. That. We stood side by side, right? It's like, you know, we went to Wounded Knee, you know, stood side by side. By aim, the Indian brothers and sisters that were standing. Right? We were part of the Chicano Moratorium. 
they were the ones protesting and y'all went to protect them. They and the black community. White boys would come riding in there and shooting up you know, houses and shit like that, put crosses on people's lawns and all that. So it's actually quite embarrassing and gross to hear people now talking about the anti-fascist movement, that they're extremists, that they're terrorists, when the history of anti-fascism where they're fighting the KKK and Nazis is this. This is what is happening, is they're going to protests where it could be steel workers like this or other oppressed groups protesting for their rights and anti-fascists show up to protect them because they are being attacked and harassed and shot at and crosses burned. And for some reason, American media portrays, again, you all as the bad guys, right? It's always this victim blaming. Well, you know, you got to understand how the economics works in this country, right? But uh, who controls the media? We don't, right? The man does. And, and, and it's in the man's interest to promote segregation, is to promote separation, keep us from uniting with each other. Right, that's the overall thing. So it's just like what's going on in this country today. I mean, for some of us, right, it's pretty obvious that when this country can go ahead and and and, and vote and make Trump a minority president, right? He didn't get the majority vote, right? A minority president and and be as racist as he is, that they're not interested in a solution, peaceful solution to the race problem or making America a really uh, equal for everybody. What they're heading toward is race war, right? What the hell is Trump up there alienating everybody? Yeah. So, it's, you know, I, I mean, it's pretty obvious to me that, yeah, that's where they're going. That's what they want. Right? Race war, the economic system won't change. Class war, all of us unite. Black, brown, red, yellow, and white, right? Then we represent the working people of this country. Then then, then, then we don't need them bosses. We don't need these suckers, right? That don't pay no taxes. The whole government, the whole apparatus, right, is used to benefit them. What the fuck, you know? should benefit us, right? We're the majority. We pay the taxes. Corporations don't. 1%. That's gaining all the wealth that's being produced in this country. They don't do no work. They just manipulate. So you're using Trump's election as an example of how a powerful white minority is able to run the country because he didn't even get the popular vote. Yeah, they manipulate that. So, you know, I just like this thing about the Republicans, Democrats are different. Well, if they were different, really different, that the Democrats should have raised all kind of hell about this electoral college, right? The voter manipulation, all that stuff that they have proof that the Republicans did all of that stuff, right? Like that joker in, in, in Florida, right? That governor. They manipulated the voting, kept all the black people from voting and shit like that. I mean, why don't they fight that Democratic Party machine? So part of the problem of electoral politics is that you want to fight within the system. A protest working outside the system would be antithetical to a political party, an electoral political party, right? Yep, yep, yep. yep. 
And to your earlier point, if I can unpack that a little bit with the man, as you call it, right? Advertisers of media, why would they want to highlight anti-fascists or radicals like you all who are going to protect like black workers or workers in general when they're protesting these big companies? A lot of times these protests where volunteer security needs to show up is when there's a protest against the company because sometimes it's the company themselves attacking the workers. That's right. Physically, violently, right? We go back to the Pinkertons. This goes way back. So of course, then the history of fighting back against this violence against the workers is portrayed as the bad guy. Yeah. Because to your point then, why would advertisers want the people who are attacking their own companies to look like good guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just addressing the disruptive role of advertising, and there's nothing illogical about recognizing that. Yeah, that's right. Well, you look at American history, right? There's a whole lot of good books coming out written by us, not by the white man, right? written by us. There's a good one, Jay Sakai, a Japanese dude, out of Chicago. The myth of the white proletariat. Right? Yeah. You look at that, you look at from the very beginning of the people coming to this country. Well, the classic example is Thanksgiving. Everybody thinks, oh, yeah, well, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful tradition that we have, right, in this country where uh, the, the white man was so appreciative of the red man teaching them how to survive, right, how to grow food and catch the birds and stuff like that, the turkey and all that. Now the real history of that comes out is that that Thanksgiving was a ploy on the part of the settlers to lull and get these Indians to come to their place, get them, you know, bullshitted into thinking that uh, they were going to be fed and all that, maybe feed them, and they'd kill their ass as they were coming out. And that's not just a uh, you know, incidents that, uh, what's it called? That was a policy that they did in Canada and the United States and, 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 uh, and, and New England. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's laid out in, in England, right? In the English history of, of the colonies. So you're talking about the massacre of the Pequot people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only the Pequot, but, you know, all the people in New England, man. All up and down the coast there. That was, that was the foundation of this country, man. Killing skins, you know. And then, you know, the other part is that, that you know, the, the white Englishmen ain't the only ones that, that colonized this country, right? Colonized Turtle Island, man. Russians did it in the Northwest, Spanish all over Southwest, Florida, Belgium, Dutch, people in New York. So you're talking about settler colonialism or settler racism, right? Where the original population is colonized and replaced by a new society of settlers. Yep, 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 yep. And so a lot of uh, racism stems from that as well. Well, the fundamental basis of it is racism. I mean, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't do that to another human being without putting them down and making them less than human, right? Yeah. You could only do that if you don't think of them as human. Right. Because these weren't soldiers. 
that were killing people. It was just regular people killing people, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So dads, moms, kids, like soldiers need to be trained to kill actual human beings. Regular folks, they're not going to kill other human beings unless they think of them as animals, just like going and hunting. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that you wanted to mention was also during this time of crisis, this pandemic, you wanted to talk and explain about the differences in organizing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, one of the things that uh, we need to look at and sum up, right, in the revolutionary history of improving people's lives. I mean, that's the bottom line, right, it's improving people's lives. So the point isn't to have a revolution at the sacrifice of human lives. The point of a revolution is to improve and better people's lives and lessen suffering. Right. The, the position is that a revolution is to liberate people and make their life better. Basically, you help the people help themselves so they become self-determining and self-reliant people. You're making a point that overthrowing the capitalists or the owners or those in power is not the same thing as being bottom up or helping the people or or working for the people or the community, right? Right, right, right. You're going after the top versus empowering the bottom. Right. And you're saying both needs to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that you can't separate the two. You do both, right? You fight the bad at the same time, you organize the people in the base to develop, you know, cooperatives, Helping each other, doing away with the you know high uh, rent for land and stuff like that. So the people themselves get organized and learn how to govern themselves. And you mentioned this to me before, but considering health and also being healthy is a part of revolution. Yeah, yeah. Being more conscious about their own health and becoming healthier, right? So this one of the, one of the side effects was this thing about the popularization of. The Chinese esoteric arts, right? Uh, 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 tai Chi, Qigong, all of this kind of stuff. Those are rich, old rich people practice this stuff because they had the time and they had the had had, had the money and the, right? poor people couldn't enjoy none of this shit. They're fucking struggling their ass just to be just just to survive. So that's one of the things that Mao said, right? Well, he put out the word, right? What? And, you know, we'd like uh, any of the masters that want to come together and develop something so that we could really improve the health of all of all of our people, right? Raise the the health standards of all of our people. Come together. So that's where that uh, twenty four forms or twenty eight forms of the of Tai Chi now the Yang style, all these things how they become popularized. So Tai Chi wasn't always something that everybody did in the parks. It became that way over time. Yeah, yeah. It, it came that way after the revolution. All this shit is after the revolution. Before that, the only time it, this stuff was practiced was in these large family associations and, 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 and the very top, right? The top families of those family associations. Right? They had their, their little gangs and shit like that. that, that they, they had the benefits of all of this stuff. Yeah, they, they were the ruling class, the feudal ruling class. So kind of like the hard and soft style in martial arts, you have one style where it's about understanding the community and organizing the community and trying to make everybody a part of this movement. 
Yep. Versus this other model where it's about having power over the community and gatekeeping who's in and who's out of your organization. It's always kind of like this purity contest. You're in, you're out. You're not a true believer versus like, dude, just take it easy. Let's try to get everybody mobilized because we're only strong if we all come together. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, they had a whole saying for that, right? Unite the many, isolate the few. I think a lot of that comes from culture, right? Because Europeans have this rich Protestant history. And so it feels very much like religion, this purity contest from religion, this proselytizing and this always like shunning that you're not intense enough in your beliefs and you're not pure enough and you don't belong in the church and blah, 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 versus being bottom up people oriented where it's like, man, let's try to get everybody to do Tai Chi. Mm -hmm. Let's show the people the benefits. Yeah. 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 Show them the benefits instead of telling them why they're bad at it already. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very demoralizing because there's people who are interested, but if you're already shitting on them from day one, they're not going to stay interested. Yeah. Well, they're they're not going to trust you. (laughs) So show them the benefits. Yeah. 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 So that that that's all that's all we're saying, right? We just need to take a look at all that's gone before us. You know, you, you don't accept nothing. Right? To check it all out and see what it is that makes us more warmer, more loving, more caring, becoming real human beings for for once in our evolution. I mean, we were at one time, right? And that was during the time when we were hunter-gatherers, right? But after the 10,000 years ago, after the agriculture revolution, and uh, wealth could be accumulated, right? And we got into this uh, class, you know, we have developed a hierarchy, developed a patriarchy, right? So that uh, we have a minority now ruling over everybody else. So that then it's been, now it's been just a control of how that minority is going to rule. So that's what socialism represents, right? It's the next step, is that it ain't going to be the minority that's supposed to be the rulers, the ruling class, right? It's supposed to be the workers. Let us rule ourselves. Yeah, the majority of people on this planet, right, ruling ourselves. It's either go that way or, right, the pollution contradiction is going to kill, kill off most of the people on this planet. We're going to be back to small, put together a band again. <laughs> so basically we all commune together and survive or we don't and we fall apart and maybe there will be a handful of humans left yeah 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 the laws of nature are for our survival right that's how we evolved because the most efficient survival machine is us so what the hell are we doing allowing a minority Govern us, leading us straight into hell. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> we should always be moving towards survival, is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. So for things to survive, they always have to move towards survival. So if it is surviving, then that's what it always did. Yeah, yeah. And generally speaking, it's positive. Look at us, right? Come out small, hunt together bands that have reached pretty much... Uh, the, the capacities of, of today's human beings, right? I mean, shit, you can't get anything more, more with the ability to survive than us. 
So, you know, we ain't got no business letting no minority run us straight into hell. <laughs> we have all this potential, so we have to use it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So this actually connects to a point that you were making when I asked you about the pandemic, because you were saying that this could be a moment where it reminds us again that this is all about life or death. Yeah, yeah. That we need to go back to the basics. We have to realize it's just one community and the ruling class want to isolate us and pit us against each other, turn us into cannibals, eating each other. Yep, yep. Because even though they're the minority, they have all the resources, so they are strong. We're weak compared to them. Except in our numbers. Yes, so our only chance is to come together because we have more numbers. When we come together and protect one another, then we're just as powerful as they are, or maybe even more powerful. Yeah, or we're more powerful, yeah. Because ultimately, and this is what your point about survival is, is a powerful person cannot survive by themselves, right? In isolation. Like, that's not how evolution works. But we, the people, we can if we come together because we need one another. We're social animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that disconnect that's there that, that represents where we're at right now is fact that we're disconnected from our heritage, right? I mean, our heritage is the Earth Mother. We there's no fucking respect for the Earth Mother. Look at that. Huh? How can we sit up there and pollute them on the planet that we live in, you know, or don't care? I mean, that's, that's, not, that's, that's not no kind of wisdom, and that ain't no kind of leadership, man. You know, substituting greed for Love of our planet, love of our heritage, man. Yeah, this this big beautiful sucker has provided for us for shit over two million years, right? When we came out of the trees, now what are we doing trying to mess up where we are? But this is what neoliberalism represents, right? It's the turning against logic, turning against right science, turning against love, turning against everything, right? Just so we get a little bit more. Turning against logic, meaning that logic implies that we should always go towards survival. Yep. And neoliberalism makes us go away from survival. Yep. 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 And if we think of ourselves as masters over this planet, then of course we're going to abuse it. But if we think of the earth as our mother, then we would respect it more. But that's if we see it as our mother and show it some gratitude, right? Yeah. 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 So that's why, you know, one of the areas that I haven't really touched on, but that uh, I consider myself a new tribal Asian, right? That uh, I don't buy into this Western philosophy and Western thinking, and I don't buy into a lot of the stuff coming out of Asia right now because it shows that disconnect with Mother Earth. And so, I, you know, I, I, I turn to the traditional teachings of the indigenous people of this land learning how to respect and love the Earth Mother, and I'm realizing that, you know, it goes back to, you know, everywhere where we're immigrants, right, that's one of the big disconnects, right? Where we immigrated from was where our genes were taken care of, right? All of this, thousands of years, and uh, we should be grateful and, and show some gratitude towards the Earth Mother, but we've been disconnected from that, and I think we should for us to get grasp that, to hold that. And that's what this pandemic is about, right? It's about 
people got to think about just what the hell's going on? Why? Yeah, it's, it's part of that pollution, right? We just we just pollute, doing all kind of stuff, and acting like, oh yeah, nothing's happening. You know, we haven't changed the environment or done anything. You believe that? All these fires, the raising of the salt water, and people with all this lung cancer and all of this other bullshit going on, right? Or a place like where they took that water and uh, from this river that had all this lead and all that other bullshit and knowingly give that water to that community, man. Yeah. And then the people that made those decisions are walking around Scott Street causing all that death and misery for all the people there. I mean, In Michigan. Yeah, I think it's Flint. Yeah, there was a global project called Predict, which was made up of a team of biologists and doctors and epidemiologists where they were studying how destruction of the natural world and pollution and global warming would cause more diseases. They call that the ecology of disease. Mm -hmm. So like the project's namesake, they've been predicting and warning about a pandemic for a long time. And they've been saying, we're not going to just have one. It's just going to keep happening as we destroy more of the world because of capitalism. Thank you. But environmental activists have been warning us about this for a long time. And even before then, traditional people, indigenous people were warning us. And even our current healthcare collapse, there have been people warning us that our system was broken, that it wasn't prepared for any big shocks, that it wasn't downside protected. But just the same as we talked about how the U.S. government mimics the U.S. government that's portrayed in the movies with certain covert actions and conspiracies. Right. Again, then life imitates art because just like in those disaster movies, there's these scientists, these doctors, these activists warning us about impending doom and we don't listen. Yeah, I mean, what the fuck is that about? Yeah. Because what they're warning us about seems so extreme. Therefore, they must be extreme, which is like a weird logic too. What they're warning us about is extreme change. So therefore, they must be too extreme for us to listen to. There's a lot of logic fallacies going on. It's like the, like here, like when they when they uh, built that new high school, right on top of the oil fields here, and the whole deal was manipulated the first time, and uh, the people who manipulated that and made the deals and all of that stuff were never punished. So yeah, you know who signed the law and the government and all of that is on. Whoever can pay for the most lawyers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. High-powered lawyers and all of that kind of stuff. It ain't about justice no more. It's about winning. And for listeners who might not know, part of the reason why you're so affected by the teachings of the indigenous people is because your time spent with indigenous people and tribal leaders is what helped you transform yourself, kick your own drug habit, and improve your own life. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I turned to. I, I didn't see anything that was out there that could motivate me enough to kick my drug habit. And it didn't happen all of a sudden or anything like that. It just, you know, I felt attracted. I felt challenged, you know. I felt like I wanted to keep doing this. You know, I didn't know why, but I just, uh, I, it made me feel better. It made me feel stronger. 
stronger, more confident about what, where my life was going. You know, I, and I think that's what the the, the old timers always said, right? Follow your heart. Don't follow your head. Follow your heart. And so, yeah, that's what I think I did. I followed my heart. I, yeah, I'm satisfied. I think with this quarantine and this pandemic and lockdown, because of what we don't have, it's making us realize what you were talking about earlier, like things like our connections in nature, because more and more people now they're going out by themselves into nature because that's all they can do, right? They're isolated. Yeah. They're supposed to stay away from people. So they're going out to nature more. They're going out to parts of their area where nature was that they never went to. Now they're going. And you also have all of us isolated. And because we can't actually see each other and spend time with each other, we want to connect with each other more than ever. Yeah. And this want to be together is where we can gather our strength. And this want to return to nature and enjoy nature is how we can reclaim Earth as our mother. Claim, reclaim our heritage, our true heritage. What is our true heritage? That we come from the Earth Mother, and if we live in harmony with the Earth Mother, we'll be okay. We will survive. Are you optimistic? Yeah, well, I'm a revolutionary, so yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic. And like I said, right, the laws all point to our moving forward to a society where people are more important than profits. And we have the wherewithal to take care of everybody on this planet, that uh, there is no need for no more going hungry, not having a place to stay, not having clothes to wear, not having a job that can help fulfill you, and, and, and healthcare. For all your needs, right? There's no need for anybody to be hurt in those areas at this moment. And when you say you're a revolutionary, I think a lot of times people think of revolutionaries as being cynical, but you're saying no, revolutionary doesn't mean cynical. Otherwise, why would you be a revolutionary? It's that's right. Having a vision of a future that could be so much better than this one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So a revolutionary ultimately always has to be an optimist. Yep. Yep. By definition. <laughs> Otherwise, what's the point, right? <laughs> yep. That's right. That's right. So Mo, were you able to get all your thoughts out or did you still have one more thing? Well, that, that, that's what I was talking about. The, that, uh, my turning to the, the traditional elders, teachings of, 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 of reverence and taking care of the Earth Mother. We're not, we don't own the Earth Mother. We live in harmony with her, right? And it's the Earth Mother that's provided us with all, all what we have right now. And there's no, no, no reason for us to, to let these rich suckers just do what they want. That 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 shit gotta stop. Yeah. And the more people that that come to that conclusion, the better off we'll be. So we're in the middle of a pandemic. Tons of people are gonna die. We're suffering. You're in your 80s. Yep. So your message to us then during this time is we cannot forget traditional knowledge. We have to remember where we come from and where we need to go. Yep. Yep. All right. Thank you, Mo. Yeah. Thank you. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode with Mo Nishida and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. 
We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. The pandemic has involuntarily made this my full-time job. So rather than my work as a content producer being funded by a big company, it's being funded directly by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content and access to our private Discord chat as well. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us on patreon.com slash southpawpod. And even if you don't support us, still check out our Patreon as there's a lot of free content as well for you to enjoy. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. The bigger the show gets, the more options we have to pay for the show and eventually pay ourselves. <laughs>